out here. Good. I don't stop till they say, ouch. <laughs> That's right. And release. Okay, now take those feet out. Hands on the inside of the knees, nice and tall. We're going to hip hinge forward. Again, if this exercise is not working for you because of your hips or your knees, please find a different stretch that does not hurt. Good, hold it there. Keep stretching with a straight back and release. Oh my gosh, Good. that's great. Now we're gonna do hip flexor and quadriceps. Turning in our chair, if you can, extend one leg back. Your heel is off the ground, but you're pressing it towards the ground. If you're not able to extend fully back, drop that knee down, pelvic tilt, and lean back into it, okay? But if you can, take that leg back and extend one arm out in front of you, up, looking up towards your fingertips. Good, and now the other side. Carefully turning in your chair, extend one leg back. Same thing, if you can't get that leg back, you can drop that knee straight down, pelvic tilt, and lean back straight into it. Good. Arm can go up, looking up your fingertips, and down. Good. All right, ankle rolls. Very important to work on our ankles. Yep. So go ahead and lift one foot up, rotate the ankles, add your wrists, nice and tall. Don't forget about your postural alignment. Go the other way. Very good. And let's place that foot down. Let's lift the other foot up. Ankle roll with the other side. Wrist rolls. And rotate the other way. Very nice. And let's place both feet down. Let's take our fingertips, touch them to our thumb. Each fingertip goes to the thumb, opening and closing each time, working on our finger dexterity, taking our thumb, now crossing that thumb over to the pinky. Good. Take the shoulders down and back, working on our postural alignment. Let's lift the knee, working and engaging the core. Good, lift. I'd like to call the regular meeting of the City Council Public Finance Authority to order. Please note that Councilman Burns has submitted a notice of absence for tonight's meeting pursuant to resolution number 2001-54. Clerk, please call the roll. Councilmember Kalmick? Here. Councilmember Mosier? Here. Mayor Pro Tem Here. Vandermark? Mayor Strickland? Here. Councilmember McKeon? Here. Councilmember Bolton? Here. All present. So three-minute uh, comments from council members. Does any council member want to do a three-minute um, speech? I do. Wait, council Thank member. You, um, I want to recognize uh, the start of National Hispanic Heritage Month, which is observed annually according to federal law from September 15th to October 15th of every year. Our national celebration of Hispanic uh, heritage was originally one week long. The president who authorized making it one month long, described the observance as recognition of the Hispanic individuals, families, and communities that enrich our national life. 
I call upon the people of the United States, especially the educational community, to observe this week with appropriate ceremonies and activities. Similar sentiments were more recently echoed. This month, we recognize the countless contributions of Hispanic Americans that make, up our nation, that make our nation a thriving and secure land of opportunity. That first quote was from President Ronald Reagan, and the second one was from President Donald Trump. In Huntington Beach, I have heard increasing instances of people questioning why we have to single out certain people for special treatment. I'm saddened when I hear that type of sentiment. It would, I would hope that each person has something in their background or their family life that, they, uh, that is a source of positivity and joy and that they want to share with others because this is all part of being an American. I think most people understand why we celebrate Labor Day to celebrate the American worker. Most people understand why we celebrate Veterans Day. When people celebrate St. Patrick's Day, I do not hear any hostility toward people who identify as Irish American um, for wanting to have parades or have parties. I have never heard anyone say that we shouldn't recognize that day because recognition of Irish or Catholic people somehow diminishes the non-Irish or non-Catholic people in our society. Instead, there's a saying, everyone is a little bit Irish on St. Patrick's Day. Everybody who wants to seems to join in, um, and it, it appears to be a great excuse and the only excuse for drinking green beer. A similar thing is happening with Cinco de Mayo and Mardi Gras. Even if people don't actually know what the day commemorates, they, it seems to be a great reason for gatherings and fun and just maybe learning a little bit about why the day is celebrated. The same could be true of Women's History Month, Black History Month, and Pride Month. People coming together to understand what these heritages mean to these people that have them and what it means to our melting pot of a country. I look forward to a time when all people can come together, including and perhaps especially the people who do not understand why America celebrates the different experiences that all make our country great. Thank you. Thank you. Councilman? Thank you very much. Um, so it was a really busy weekend in Huntington Beach. Um, I was fortunate to get to attend the Active Living Expo, uh, which was uh, held at the Senior Center. I just wanted to give a shout out and appreciation to the Huntington Beach Council on Aging Board and volunteers, as well as the Senior Center volunteers, as well as the vendors who were there. It was a, a very well-attended event. And um, I think it's just great that we're able to provide those resources to our seniors so that they are able to age with dignity in Huntington Beach and really get connected to um, all of those resources that exist. Uh, second, I had the great pleasure um, of attending the Blessing of the Waves from the Greater Huntington Beach Interfaith Council um, on Sunday evening. I have never gone to one where they had it in the evening, only in the morning, and I have to say that it was stellar. It was so well attended. Um, the First they had music by lifeguard band Crew 52, and then, um, which was really awesome. And then the, um, the drummers that normally come there on Sundays actually kind of just waited until the event was over. It was great. Um, then they celebrated with their drumming afterwards. Um, but it was just really beautiful in that there were so many different um, faith groups represented, um, including this time um, Jackie Nunez, who was from the Hashiman tribe. Um, I know I didn't do that properly, but um, she was amazing and ended up blessing the waves with sage and um, 
uh, it was just really a beautiful event. So if you didn't get to go this year, I encourage you to go next year. And then the last thing that I wanted to mention that I was able to attend um, this weekend was a uh, great day in the Stoke. It was the second year that it was held uh, in Huntington Beach. And I actually just wanted to briefly read, um, it was actually a social media post by a young man, by his mom, um, who he participated in the event. And I think it really kind of just talks about the whole thing all in itself in lieu of me just doing it. So it says, proud mom moment. Ace participated in the beginner's competition at a great day in the Stoke yesterday. He started learning how to surf in July of 2023 and has been hooked ever since. He loves the ocean, the waves, and the thrill of riding them. I love the amazing community of black surfers who have welcomed him and supported him in this journey. He has made new friends, learned new skills, and gained confidence and joy. He was so excited to be part of this event, which celebrates the diversity and inclusion of black surfers. The event was held at the Huntington Beach Pier, where just a few months ago, the US Open of Surfing was hosted and where professional surfers from around the world competed. I am grateful for this opportunity for him to see surfers who look like him and inspire him to pursue his passion. Thank you to Nathan Flewellen and everyone who organized this event and made it possible. You are making a difference in the lives of many young black surfers like Ace. You are creating a positive and fun experience for them and introducing others to the sport of surfing. You are fostering a culture of trust, cooperation, and respect among surfers of all backgrounds. You are making surfing more accessible, diverse, and inclusive. You are making history. Thank you for a great day in the Stoke. And I just wanted to thank Nathan Flewellen, uh, Don Ramsey, Kenny Bennett, so many people from throughout the community. Rocky McKinnon was teaching surfing lessons as well. It just really showed how everybody can come together to um, really make Huntington Beach such a welcoming, uh, diverse, and inclusive place. Thank you. Okay, uh, I would like to say that uh, this weekend I attended the opening of the Oktoberfest at Old World. Uh, it was an event put on by the Kiwanis. It was uh, unbelievably well attended. Um, I had the opportunity and the good fortune to keep the tradition of the mayor uh, cracking the first keg. And Oktoberfest is going on right now at Old, Old World, and I encourage all the Huntington Beach residents to attend. It's a great event, and uh, it was just an honor and privilege to be there over the weekend. So with that, um, going down, uh, comment, City Clerk, do we have any supplemental communications at this time? For study session item number three, we received three email communications regarding the Mobility Implementation Plan, HB in Motion survey results. For closed session item number three, a memo was received from our Interim Director of Human Resources, Teresa St. Peter, providing a correction to the spelling of the claimant's name. And that's it for this portion of the meeting. Thank you. Um, City Clerk, do we have anybody signed up at this portion to speak? We do have one individual. Steve Shepard, could you come on down? Thank you, Mr. Shepard. Uh, thanks for being here. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, I had a number of prepared remarks today, and um, all that changed in less than three miles it took me to get here. Um, you all got my email. You got my little plan today. And all that, all that swell. We sit around, we talk about the data points. 
I sit in Public Works Commission meetings and we talk about projects. About halfway here, I came upon an older gentleman being put into an ambulance, two HBPD units at the corner of Atlanta and Newland, helping this gentleman up, uh, bandaging his head, and I'm assuming off to the hospital. Uh, there was no bike, there was no car. I'm assuming he either took a header or, or somebody kind of clipped him in the, uh, in the intersection. But I was here to remind you guys, these are not data points. This is not about lycra-clad uh, Tour de France racers. This is not about uh, fearless bike commuters. This is about our kids. This is about the elderly. This is about moms sprinting across arterials, pushing strollers to get to the playground. I've heard a lot in this council chamber about protecting our children. There is a clear and present danger on our streets right now. In addition to the elderly gentleman that I saw HBPD helping scrape up off the street, I passed four different K through 12 schools. This is the fourth iteration of the city council that I've advocated for on this point. I've talked to the city manager, I've talked to past city managers. I know there are recommendations, I know there are recommendations that consultants are telling us these are the things we can do. It's not enough. It simply is not enough. We have an excessive speed problem and we have a safety problem for our residents. I ask you to consider those things when you are thinking about this survey. All right, that was what I was here to say. Thank you very much. Thank you, thanks Mr. Shepard. More. My name's Randall Costello. Hello Huntington Beach City Council. Hello, Huntington Beach. Not sure who these people are. I have a couple of things. Man, what is up with the Masonic Illuminati Lodge Museum right down the street? Been here for what, uh, since 1958? Y'all heard of Masonic people and the Illuminati? Nobody? A museum? I went in there. I went in there. What do you think? Have you been in there? I really don't even want to talk to you people. I don't care who you are. I already know. I saw some guy talking to city council and he let go. Can you cuss in here? You can't cuss. Best thing is none of you can say anything because you made some paper bag rule. Man, are you guys good. Now you got some AT&T thing going on or T-Mobile or something. Yeah, T-Mobile just took some money out of my account before it was due. Man, who's the... why? Who is they talking about hanging out with Nazis. Was that you, young lady? It was one of you ladies. Look at the stares you get. Man. That's why I, next time I come here and talk, 
I'm going to talk to these people, not you. You'll be lucky to hear it. Hello, ma'am. I still got a minute. Who, how do I get some Do you send me a letter of any of the questions I ask? Do they send a letter? No, you don't. There's, you don't respond to anything that anyone says here? That's why you got to go. And I don't know any of you or what you do. But if you listen to these people and do not respond to it in some way, a text, an a email, or official paper that y'all have, and don't interrupt me in 10 seconds. I'm done. I'll be back, though. I hope I'm not like... Thank you for being here. Thank don't you so much. Thank me. It's my, it's my job. Thank you. Um, uh, so, City Clerk, we're... Done with the speakers at yes, this point. That concludes public comments. And then uh, members going down, uh, we have a staff uh, report. Uh, staff, uh, please introduce your presentation at this time. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Good evening. Um, this is an update on the Huntington Beach Mobility Implementation Plan, HB in Motion. We want to provide you an update on the survey that we've received so far. So on the agenda, we want to provide some of the feedback we've received from survey number one as well as number two. We want to discuss improvements related to bicycle recommendations, pedestrian recommendations, the beach path recommendation, as well as e-bike education enforcement efforts that's happening currently with the city. Our project goals tonight is to not only improve the citywide bike and pedestrian network, but also safety for all users. We want to improve comfort and design for the beach path as well. We want to build upon the city's long-term mobility uh, pedestrian plan, transportation plan, and bicycle plan. It is a balancing act when it comes to mobility. We have to leverage everything related to residents, visitors, emergency services, as well as uh, motorists who drive in the city. We want to identify a strategy as well as system improvements to facilitate a balanced and equitable transportation system. This document is prepared so that we can leverage funding when it comes to grant opportunities, local level, county level, as well as the state and federal level. We, we know that e-bikes are here. They're coming and they're here, and we need to prepare for infrastructure not only for e-bikes, but their scooters, motorized skateboards, and micro-mobility devices. And even right now, new devices are being introduced regularly. So the project timeline we have, um, we have a, a website set up, hbmobility.com. It started back in May 2022, and it's still live right now. We have the survey that was done back in February 2022 and lasted for six months. We briefed council at that time on results of survey number one, where we basically asked the residents, what do you want? What is the problem? What should we address in terms of mobility? And they gave it to us. So um, in, in the public meeting, we had a briefing with residents as well. It was a virtual meeting, and we had 36 people. We had survey number two which was released on May 2023 and is live right now. 
We presented draft recommendations to them. We asked them, what do you prefer? We gave them examples of uh, infrastructure that was out there existing throughout the city. We asked them, what do you want? What don't you like as well? And so we're here today to brief you um, on those draft recommendations that we heard from survey number two. We plan on having another public meeting to share those draft recommendations with the public in fall of 2023. So this is a measured approach to get feedback from the public, to develop our plan, make sure that it's been vetted by the public and that we have their blessing. Subsequent to this, staff will prepare a draft mobility plan for comments. Now I'm gonna go over some of uh, results from survey number phase one to just to recap. In phase one, the first survey, survey we received 860 responses. 93% live in Huntington Beach. And we heard the residents tell us no e-bikes, yes to e-bikes, separate the e-bikes, people riding too fast, slow them down, more enforcement, more education. And we, we got the message. We got that every, we know that everyone drives in Huntington Beach. We get that but we want to continue to maintain the same level of service and also improve safety for all users. The other element we got from the survey is that the secondary mode of transportation they cited was biking and walking. So that's something the community has wanted and they want that planned for in the future as well. Go ahead, Joe. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Joe Yakabuchi. Uh, I'm the project manager from the consulting team uh, supporting uh, uh, Chow and her staff on this project. Uh, I'm going to go into some of the technical, anal technical analysis that is accompanying this. I also want to point out, too, that we shared this, this slide also about a year ago, too, so this is just a refresher for you. Uh, but we identified, you know, from the technical analysis that uh, Huntington Beach is a family-friendly focused community and a lot of the areas that they're walking and biking, especially on side streets, is very safe. Uh, at, this, at the same time, though, th that safety breaks down when you get to most arterials, uh, which, which are you know, you know, primarily uh, do have bike facilities on them currently uh, as, as a baseline for safety it could be much enhanced. And that's really what we wanted to identify here. Uh, we also understood too, and, and Chow alluded to this uh, in the, the survey results, that the primary mode of getting around Huntington Beach is, on, is, is by car, uh, but there's, there's a potential good way to, to sort of balance that and, and create additional safety enhancements for, for pedestrians and bicyclists while not diminishing uh, the experience of somebody that's driving, uh, which is a, is a key factor. Uh, next slide. Uh, so we did a phase two survey, uh, as, as Chow had mentioned, we launched this in May, and this is just a little bit of background. We've been promoting the survey uh, wherever, whoever wants to promote it for us, we've been taking advantage of that around there, and, and we already have over, uh, this is a little bit outdated, but we already, I think we have close to 600 respondents right now. We anticipate getting uh, close to 800 uh, to match the phase one survey, and we'll have this out after our public meeting as well, and using the public meeting to promote this. The one thing that this slide shows, though, is that there, there is, there's good representation for all age groups on this, uh, which is important, uh, because you don't want something that's just solely focused on particular age groups, and so as far as promoting this to seniors or, or school-age children, we, we, we have done that, and we, we take every opportunity to do that in the future. Next slide. Uh, and so some of the initial results, and again, the survey's still open, but we wanted to, to share this, uh, you know, kind of in progress here. 
you know, we, we asked a couple questions about walking and e-bike, and, and, and one of the highlights here is that we identified there's been a very strong response uh, for a positive sentiment towards the, the separated beach path uh, alignment uh, that's similar to what was just implemented less than a year ago on, between Seapoint and 11th Street. People like that separation, so you don't have to worry about if you're on a bike uh, going around pedestrians. If you're a pedestrian, you have to worry about a bike trying to meander through there. Uh, there's, in addition to that, uh, crosswalks is also, it has a lot of support too. People want areas where they can cross into the beach and, and understand that there's gonna be the markings for that. Uh, in addition to slow zones and areas that, that have a lot of potential conflicts where those conflicts are there. Uh, there's also strong or moderate support for feedback signs uh, as it currently appears on 11th. It's just a nice indication for people if you're riding your bike, sometimes you don't know how fast you're going. This just gives you the immediate reinforcement that maybe I'm going too fast or, or I'm, I'm right, on, right on track. Uh, there, there's also uh, some support for, for uh, you know, 10 mile per hour speed limit or just the, the, at least the, the opportunity to identify that. Uh, for on-street facilities, um, we identified different types, as, as Chow had mentioned, uh, of, of facilities, and some of these here are on, on the right-hand side. And there is strong preference for uh, what we call separated bike lanes, and, and these, are, these are, have some kind of separation, e either physical or even stripe separation, uh, and that, that appear on current streets like Delaware, a parking lane on protected bike lane on Springdale or buffer bike lane on Algonquin. And that, that was some, somewhat intuitive that, that we got the response that, that people prefer those types of facilities because they do offer a little bit more protection. Uh, and also for if you're an automobile too, there's a nice demarcation, physical demarcation to identify where the vehicles go, where the, where the cyclists go. Both modes uh, of travel uh, benefit from that type of treatment. Uh, and then we identified the top three uh, treatment type People wanted more robust, so they wanted to see things like planters that also provided beautification or greening elements to the streets as well. Uh, but just this was a lot intuitive. It was it was good that this kind of a, it was interpreted this way. Uh, we appreciated the feedback for this. Next slide. Uh, and so then we also asked questions um, uh, regarding the the perceptions of, of e-bikes. And obviously, this is a much discussed issue in a lot of communities, but especially in Huntington Beach. Uh, and what we found was on the roadways, it, it was a, there, there was a, the key takeaway is about 46% of people find e-bikes to be an issue. Uh, about 33% identified that they weren't an issue. And, and the, the remainder being that, that they didn't really have a strong opinion either way. Uh, what's interesting thing about this, when you, when you get to the beach path, you could see that the percentage of people finding that e-bikes are an issue on the beach path has gone up. And I think that's just because that there's the potential for more conflicts. Uh, next slide. Uh, we also asked people uh, to indicate where improvements are most needed in HB. And there's two primary areas kind of edging off the beach and, and downtown uh, on the west side of the city in the south part, uh, and, and also in the Huntington Harbor area. And we just identified this, and these, these, these largely match, I think, you know, as far as the, the, the general interest of people wanting to see enhanced facilities. Next slide. And then we've done a lot of observations on the streets. Uh, you know, and Trevor here, who's on the team, sitting two over here as a HB resident. So we have people on the ground that are in the city here. 
but we've also, under the leadership of Chow and her team, have made sure that we've gotten out there and we've done several observations so that it matches the technical analysis to, to make sure that we're observing this. And what you can see is a variety of things, families biking, older couples on e-bikes, things you wouldn't necessarily be, uh, you, you wouldn't necessarily expect. Uh, a very crowded beach path at a lot of times, especially in that central area. Uh, and, um, and then you know, pedestrian and bicyclists and scooter conflicts on, on the beach path as well. And so uh, with all this in mind, this just kind of sets us up. I want to discuss some of the preliminary recommendations. And as Chow mentioned, our, our next step is to go to a public meeting and basically ask the community about this. So we want to just preview th this with, uh, with, with, with the council today and for discussion. So first, we'll go over the, the bicycle recommendations. And the approach that we're taking here, it, it's again, we're, we're just trying to achieve balance here. Uh, so we have what's called a toolkit where we have you know, different treatments in that toolkit that can be applied to, to certain streets. This is a very smart, context-sensitive approach to identify that, you know, for a certain street that, that uh, robust improvements might not necessarily be, be adequate for that, or, or, or another street that, that, that might have extra space where we can provide additional improvements. Um, next slide. So you can see here, this is a, a, a wide variety, and, and the idea is to get this, this toolkit, um, uh, you know, basically uh, get, get this uh, uh, identified with the community so they understand. And we've taken, you know, with the exception of the, the median refuge islands, all of these facilities actually currently exist in HB. So we're not talking about something that is novel or is, is complete. We wanted to identify familiarity too. So what we call near-term or low-hanging fruit for, you know, versus a phasing, you know, transformative, and all transformative actually really means is more capital intensive. So I just want to put that out there. Uh, so you know, more lighter touch, you know, uh, more affordable uh, aspects is like buffered bike lanes or leading pedestrian intervals. Leading pedestrian intervals give you give the pedestrian or cyclist a couple seconds head start before traffic, so they're more visible. Uh, so they reduce conflicts that way. Uh, Mid block flashers. These are areas you know, in, in some some places in Huntington Beach. You, you can you have to walk you know 15 minutes actually to get to the closest crossing, which diminishes. The, uh, the, the appetite for, for somebody to actually make a crossing. So these could be put in places in between those signalized crosswalks. Uh, separated bike lane, uh, it, it is just what it says, but Springdale is a great example of that where there's a parking protected facility. And then we, again, the, the beach path, uh, we, we have the new separated facility for, for space for pedestrians versus cyclists. And then finally, a median refuge island, which are pretty prominent uh, you know, all over the world. As a, as a place, but with, with a lot of medians here, there could be the opportunity to actually shorten that crossing distance, especially for the elderly or somebody with disabilities that takes a longer time to cross the street. The refuge island is, is really important for the, those, those uh, subcategories. Um, so all this with the count, we, what we did is we established um, what the existing network here is on the left. And so the first thing I want to point out, on the left, it's, it's, it's a faint green line, but basically every arterial has a bike facility on there. So you're, we already have the baseline of a safe facility, on each street. Uh, that being said, the, 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 large, the, the darker blue lines indicate where we actually have uh, more robust facilities and facilities that, that just about everybody feels comfortable on. And so what we want to do is we want to build out some of those more robust facilities throughout the, 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 the city. And what we identified in the phase one, based on those factors that I already went over, including the mapping that we did, is we establish what is a base network that will use that toolkit. So again, a wide variety of different improvements can be implemented on each of these corridors. It's not a one-size-fits-all improvements that are gonna be on the present in all these streets, but it'll be context-sensitive where we have space, we could put a buffer, for instance. Um, and then on the phase two, uh, th that's basically just establishing what a potential network will look like in the future. 
so uh, each of these quarters will be looked at individually, uh, whether it's going for grant funding to, to help with capital costs or it's part of a repaving program. Uh, each of these streets will, will be looked at individually and those types of improvements will be identified specifically at a later date. This is just kind of identifying the overall network approach and to identify that there is the importance of a network. Uh, I'm sure everybody has been on a bike facility at one time that just abruptly ends and that's what we wanna try to get away from here is to identify that there's a place to get around HB on every mode uh, uh, you know, safely throughout the city. Uh, so that's what this represents. And then uh, just going up to the pedestrian recommendations, I'll just highlight this. There is a multitude of factors. I'm not gonna get into each one of these individually, but we did take, the, take a technical approach to uh, identifying, including crashes, including uh, transit or population density and destinations, and even looking at vulnerable populations. Uh, next slide. Uh, so the, we've identified this three-phase um, uh, pedestrian corridors here. Uh, including these streets here. And again, similar to what we identified in the bike program, we, we just wanted to identify an area where, where pedestrians can get around the city and, and enhance safety for pedestrians while not diminishing uh, the, the usability for any users. Uh, and then with that, uh, we'll, we'll end off the beach path recommendations. We spent a lot of time on this and we, again, did a lot of observations and field visits. Um, we monitored the, the, the new path separation as well. Uh, and and uh, and again, you know, just just to get down to, we have a toolbox of improvements here. If we go to the next slide, uh, where we looked at everything from rumble strips, which could, which could either be just visual indicators, uh, or they could actually be physical uh, cues there as well. Uh, speed feedback signs, conflict markings. A lot of these things are already on the beach path as today. So I don't want to go necessarily into this in depth, but there's already a lot of best practices in the beach path. There's already best, a lot of best practices in Huntington Beach as far as bike and pedestrian infrastructure. And we're just looking at trying to duplicate that and, and, and expand that into a network so it makes sense and people can actually navigate the city in all modes. Uh, so with that, I'll turn it back to Chow who will talk about e-bike education. We want to update the council on some efforts that's happening with e-bike education and enforcement. You know, we, we know it's a hot topic right now, and uh, what the efforts that we've found so far is that if there is a policy coming from the council that it's clear and that, um, that we enforce it, and uh, we also have efforts where we want to recommend safe and future-focused bike infrastructure and signage to, to help regulate any e-bike paths or trails that would be recommended later on in the future. Education, um, we've got bike radios that are happening right now through the police department, so kudos to the police department for spearheading that. I hear Huntington Beach is just one of two cities that's doing it, so congratulations to our police department. Uh, Huntington Beach is also involved with stakeholder meetings through OCTA. So OCTA is spearheading a task force for e-bike, not only at the city level, but for the regional level, because this isn't just an HB problem. It is a regional um, issue that we are all trying to wrap our heads around. Every city is trying to deal with e-bikes right now, and we're looking to OCTA for guidance. They've gone ahead and printed material for us to start engaging the public. Uh, there's, there's bike hangers, there's pamphlets, there's QR codes, there's bike safety um, awareness, stickers, uh, all types of promotional materials to help promote safety. Uh, 
we also recommend data collection. Right now, there is no accident data related to e-bikes at this time. It's not there. It's something that it, it could be done through the police reporting system, but it has not been established citywide or anywhere throughout the state that it, we are aware of. So that will help with uh, promoting legislation, fighting for legislation, because everything is data-driven. So that will be a recommendation as well. Um, also, regulation target enforcement. That's something that I know the police department in Huntington Beach is doing. They've got target enforcement over at the beach path to have people slow down. So we, we're doing a lot of efforts in Huntington Beach, and uh, kudos to the police department. So the next steps is to, um, after this study session, is to brief the public about our draft recommendations, to share the survey results with them, and also bring back a draft mobility plan for council adoption. Before it goes to council, this plan will be circulated for comments so that we make sure we hear everyone's comments on, on this draft plan. And the plan will result in concept drawings as well as analysis, identifying where it's possible to construct corridors of the citywide network, and which areas have the greatest opportunity for improved safety. The plan will highlight areas of bike ped network which have been looked at for feasibility, and the plan will build upon extensive public input and be utilized to leverage future grant funding. So that concludes our, our report tonight. We'll answer any questions at this time. Go ahead. I have a question. The next public meeting, is that going to be in person or online as well? We are anticipating virtual because we, we anticipate there'll be more attendance if it's virtual so that people can you know, stay with their children or be at work and still chime in into the meeting. And you said that would be in the fall? Yes. Okay, thank you. Right. Yeah, um, congratulations, first of all. Uh, uh, Public Works Director Vu, glad to see you uh, get a much-deserved promotion. Uh, just a couple of observations. So I recall uh, last year, Chief Para giving us some accident statistics related to e-bikes. I just can't remember uh, what the date of that meeting was. And so one thing I would like to ask about, and I know we're going to talk about an e-bike ordinance later, is um, yeah, that process of um, gathering e-bike-specific statistics, because I agree with you that those are going to be very useful for us to have. Um, and I actually um, was under the mistaken impre impression, obviously, that um, we had started collecting statistics uh, on accidents that involved e-bikes specifically, but we can talk about that some more in the future. And then with respect to communication, um, I understand um, the process that you're going through for the mobility plan, but specifically pertaining to e-bikes, I do think that we need to have stakeholder meetings within the city of Huntington Beach, because just based on the interactions that I have with residents, a lot of the information is, you know, it takes time for this information to kind of filter out. And so I think that to the extent we can do some stakeholder meetings, especially when we have some concrete things to share with people like, you know, what you're describing here on e-bike education and, um, you know, the discussion of the, you know, enforcement um, and other types of regulatory measures that we're looking at adopting. I think that people will appreciate um, just being updated or informed on what's going on with respect to e-bikes. So thank you. Thank you. Joe, quick question. What was that you mentioned that us and one other city are doing with the police it's, department? It's Laguna Niguel. But what are they doing? 
they're doing um, uh, regulatory enforcement at the school level. Got it. Okay. That's it. And then also, I'm assuming we'll have the different cost breakdowns on which option we want to choose on the different mobility plans. In the we future. could cost it out, yes. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Go ahead, Councilman. Thank you, Chuck, for uh, uh, this great, I think, uh, kind of tease as the final master plan comes forward. And um, this is a great, I think, making us eligible for grant funding, which is what a master plan generally does and doesn't lock us into really any um, matter. I think the costing will come forward when the projects come forward, but this gives us a toolbox to say, here's how we can make uh, bike and, and pedestrian um, movement in the city much safer. Because right now we have an engineering problem with this. I, I did take a little note where you said we've got well, we've got safe bike facilities on a lot of our arterials. We have bike facilities on a lot of our arterials. We have paint on the ground, um, which I don't believe makes a safe bike facility. Um, I've seen too many people just on their phone starting to drift over into that bike lane um, on Warner. I mean, traffic generally moves at 50 plus miles an hour. Um, you got to take your life into your own hands to ride bikes on a, a lot of roads in our city and. I hope this goal will slowly but surely make our city a safer uh, place to ride bikes. And it may not be, you know, we get a lot of emails from folks saying, we need a stoplight here, we need a signal here, because the intersection feels unsafe, right? It may not be unsafe. We, may have, we look at the traffic data and no one has died, no one, there's been no car accidents, but there's a lot of close calls that we don't capture. I think that speaks a lot to bike and uh, people walking and biking in this community. I think biking, for the most part, is folks don't feel safe. Like, my, I want to ride my, my daughter to school, quarter mile away because when I drive there in the morning because she's four I can't walk her there because her legs will stop working after the first hundred feet um, I end up parking so far away that I still end up having to carry her I'd love to ride my bike there my wife does not want me riding a bike down Newland with my daughter in it um, especially in the morning with school drop-off so I think part of this should hopefully help as we design projects going forward to have a plan that says when we take into account child safety um, because you experience your city in a whole different way when you're walking or biking. You're not experiencing it in your four-ton uh, metal box uh, that's air-conditioned with your own music on. You experience the sounds, the sights, the smells. Um, actually, I found dinner tonight um, walking. Uh, and I said, I got out and I smelled the food. I'm like, where is that? And so you, you experience your city at a different, uh, a different clip. And uh, I'm hopeful that this master plan, which again, eligible for grant funding, which is there's so much money running downhill right now for uh, making bike safety uh, an issue, uh, a higher priority in communities. But, you know, I think we can't talk about this without addressing vehicle violence, right? We had a horrible incident happen a couple of days ago. Um, we have vehicles routinely, I think, not routinely, but occasionally crashing into folks on bikes. And I think that if we can create some sort of safe infrastructure, obviously putting car, parked cars between people and bikes is great, and K-Rail and all of that. But if we don't have funding for a certain project, I would love to see us be able to pre-engineer for it, that if we're going to we leave the space when we're restriping an arterial that says, okay, we can come back in the future uh, with some sort of protected barrier. And I, I'm very confident, as a lot of other cities in the world have done, again, we're not the first city to, to decide we wanted to, that it would be good to have bike traffic, um, that if you build it, they will come. If you have safe, connected infrastructure, we can do that. And the only way we're going to decrease car traffic in the city is to give people a viable option to get around. I think um, our consultant 
brought up the point that it can take you 15 minutes to cross the street legally in some parts of the city. Beach Boulevard, I actually had a conversation with the California Secretary of Transportation about this issue, including Beach Boulevard and Pacific Coast Highway. Um, with We have these giant signalized freeways, for lack of a better term, running through our city that if you're on one side, you to legally cross Beach Boulevard, you gotta make a long walk to find a signal to get across um, an eight lane highway. And the same thing with Pacific Coast Highway. We get a lot of emails from residents downtown that wonder where the crosswalks went um, down in some of the higher numbered streets. And so you see surfers running across the street. Um, so again, like I think this is, is excellent, um, excellent work. I'm excited to see the finalized plan um, and obviously, you know, Mr. Shepard's email earlier today showing how to get connectivity to our schools. I mean, I rode my bike to school for fourth and fifth grade, and it was great. It gave me, uh, you know, um, autonomy, and it gave me, you know, a sense of my, you know, being able to have responsibility. Um, but the flip side of that is obviously we need to make sure that our kids are safe um, and safe routes to schools. I don't, I don't think Huntington City is, City School District has implemented their safe routes to schools yet, but um, obviously we want to make sure that we're, that the policy is there and that the engineering mandate is there from the city that we're trying to make uh, make this safe for the community. So thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. Councilwoman. I too just wanted to say thank you. I know this has been a long time in coming and I know it will continue to be um, a lot of work as we move forward. Um, you know, I, I too uh, think that it's really about safety um, and, you know, a lot of it is really making people more comfortable as well, um, and I know it may be even making families or parents more comfortable too, speaking as one who doesn't like to, or hasn't encouraged my kids through the years to travel far throughout the city because of my concerns um, about getting safely from one side to the next. Um, in fact, my, um, my son was gonna start boxing over the summer, and um, I was like, well, maybe you can ride your bike and uh, we took a drive that day just to see like where was this gonna be. And I was thinking that the Springdale um, enhancements that we did had gone all the way down to Edinger, which of course they did not. I think they started at Warner and that's where the boxing is. And so essentially it didn't help them at all. And it was just kind of a bummer for me. And I know we can't you know, um, help everybody throughout the city, but it was that moment of, I, I would have encouraged him to go that way, but to have to get through so many uh, major intersections I didn't, and so then he had to wait for me to be able to bring him places, which is unfortunate. Um, so it's these types of things and creating, as um, Mr. Shepard said, the kind of that spine throughout the city through the years that I think is really important um, of, of better um, pedestrian and biking infrastructure. Um, you know, I do think that people do feel more comfortable, as it says with this study, um, uh, or the survey indicating that if there is um, something in between them and the cars, they're going to feel better and they're more likely, as Councilmember Kalmick said, if you build it, they will come. A lot of people say, well, there's not that many people biking in different areas or why do we build this if they're not there? They're not there, I think, because they don't feel safe or comfortable. Um, and I, I believe that a lot more people would get out on their bikes um, and different mobility devices um, and out of their cars. And you know, and we do talk about um, the challenge of, of traffic and congestion, and that is a way for us to hopefully move beyond that if we get people, you know, cities grow. Um, as the cities grow, um, this would be another opportunity for people to, if they felt safe, um, get on a bike or on e-bike or what have you. Um, also, um, you know, I know that our neighbor, Costa Mesa, has 
done a really great job um, of creating a lot of, um, of great biking infrastructure and looking at things kind of in different ways. I know they have a council that's been really um, uh, pro do, creating that type of infrastructure. Um, but I would love for us, and maybe we already have um, worked with the city of Costa Mesa as well, and we're, we're, we're regional. We talked about this regional piece too, right? We're connected to them. Have we um, spoken with them or worked with them at all on what, they're, what they've been doing? I have not, but I am aware of their bike infrastructure. They're really greening it up, literally. Yes, Paint. they are. And I know I drove down uh, Garden Grove. They are as well. Westminster is a bit. So it's you see it happening. And if we can really do that with all of the cities, imagine people would really be able to get around um, in a different way. And it is a regional opportunity um, and a regional challenge. Um, let's see. The Safe Routes to School, of course, is also um, really important. Um, and again, like if we could get I know that the schools have worked on those and they have those on file, but I don't feel like we actually work to make them robust where people still feel safe actually getting there outside of the neighborhoods. Um, I know we're talking with the schools, though, always about those safe routes to schools, um, and I appreciate that. Um, oh, one other thing. Uh, also, with Costa Mesa, I know they have an active transportation committee. And I know recently we've kind of done away with a lot of our committees, but I think that um, citizen committees like that help to demonstrate where our priorities are. And also, there are a lot of folks who are on the ground here, literally, <laughs> uh, who I think would be really interested in um, participating, uh, doing walks, doing rides. Um, of course, we want to incorporate the entire community, but I would, um, I would encourage uh, our city to consider having some type of um, you know, active transportation committee like that. I, I believe that we had one uh, for biking specifically back in maybe 2013 or 14. Um, I don't know how that went then, but I think there's maybe an opportunity um, now. I don't know if there's any comments on that, on like the value of something like that. We, that's part of our engagement. They would be a major stakeholder as okay. a subcommittee. If so. we had that. Yes. Okay. That would be great. Okay. Um, well, I, I appreciate everything that you've done. And um, one more thing on the mobility piece, which is, I think is separate from this, but the, um, the master plan. Um, are, we're including uh, vehicle mobility as far as cars and things like that within that as well, correct? Or is it just micro and no, bike it's, mobility? No, it's bike ped. Okay. Bike ped. Where do we look at vehicle mobility um, efforts? And the reason that I bring it up, so just to kind of front load it too, is um, you know as we move forward with electric vehicles and things like that too, um, to encourage that type of use, um, I'm just thinking that that might, I don't know where that would show up in a master plan. I guess that's my question is like vehicle charging and things like that. And maybe it's not here, um, but where, where might it show up? Green infrastructure. Great. Green, like sustainability. Yeah. And you bring up my final thing, which was um, I hope that we're looking at this through a sustainability lens. I know we haven't finished wrapping up our sustainability master plan yet, um, but I think that we should look at all of our planning through that lens, and I, I hope that that's done and we can vote that through soon so that we can look at all of these types of um, planning processes through that lens as well. Thank you. Anything else, members?
Seeing nothing. Thank you so much for the presentation and all the hard work that you put into this presentation. Really appreciate it. Um, members going down to the agenda. Now we're going to close session announcements. Um, I have to announce uh, we're in a conference with labor negotiators, government code section 54957.6, AG, agency uh, designated representatives, Alison Linka, city manager, Melanie Cheney, chief negotiator, also in attendance are uh, Jose Rodriguez, human resources manager, Teresa St. Peter, interim director of human resources, Travis Hopkins, assistant city manager, Michael Gates, city attorney, Scott Haberly, fire chief, and Sonny Hahn, uh, chief financial officer, employee organization, the Huntington Beach Fire Fighters Association and Fire Management Association, also conference with labor negotiators, government code section 54957.6, agency designated representatives, Al Zalinka, city manager, Travis Hopkins, assistant city manager, uh, Melanie Cheney, chief negotiator, Teresa St. Peter, Interim Human Resources Director, Sunny Hahn, Chief Financial Officer, Eric Parra, Police Chief, Jose Rodriguez, a Human Resources Manager, Employee Organization, Huntington Beach, Police Officers Association, HBPOA. Do I hear a motion and second to go to closed session? A mayor, um, right here. Yeah. I have a, a update on tonight I just wanted to share with the city council. Okay. Um, the HBFA and the FMA items um, will not be heard in closed session tonight. I just wanted to announce that. Oh, great. Okay. All right. Do I hear a motion and second to um, go to closed session? Moved. Second. Second. We're now going to closed session. I'd like to reconvene the regular meeting of the City Council Public Finance Authority. Clerk, please call the roll. I'd just like to mention, too, that pursuant to Resolution 2001-54, Councilmember Burns requested and has received permission to be absent tonight. Thank you. So, Councilmember Kalmick. Here. Councilmember Mosier. Here. Mayor Pro Tem Vandermark. Here. Mayor Strickland. Here. Councilmember McKeon. Here. Councilmember Bolton. Here. All present. Uh, today will be led to the Pledge of Allegiance by Councilwoman Rhonda Bolton. 
Now we'll have the invocation done by Huntington Beach Police and Fire Chaplain Roger Wing. Good evening. Would you now please play with me as we ask God's blessing on this evening's City Council meeting. Lord, you encourage us in your word to incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. And we pray for your wisdom and understanding this evening and, and throughout tonight's meeting. As our city council considers all of the many difficult issues before them, may you provide your wisdom and discernment on each topic and guide them as they deliberate and make decisions. As our council members discuss the issues, may you bring your peace, unity, and harmony through all the discussions. We ask that you would provide each one with discernment, clarity, and direction as they consider and deliberate the issues on the agenda this evening. We pray that you would give each, each council member patience as they hear the comments from those who will be coming to the podium to speak this evening. Keep them open to the feedback they receive, both positive and negative, so they can graciously lead and govern with the most complete information and to provide the best direction for our city. And Lord, please guide each speaker this evening to offer their comments clearly and concisely with dignity and respect. Lord, you've called each council member to the role they now occupy for such a time as this. So we ask you to guide them by your spirit. We ask you to bless each of our council members and their families, that you would keep them healthy and safe. And we pray for each and every one of our first responders and public servants as they so selflessly and faithfully serve our community. We ask your guidance and wisdom for each of our city leaders and for all of our city employees who so faithfully and diligently serve us all. Lord, we ask you to bless our meeting this evening, and may your peace and wisdom guide all that occurs tonight. And we ask this all in your wonderful name, Lord. Amen. Amen. Members going down the agenda. City Attorney, do we have anything to report? Nothing tonight from closed session. Thank you, Mayor. City Clerk, do we have any supplemental communications? Yes, we do, Mayor. It's my little sheet here. For consent calendar item number nine, an email regarding the reappointment of Jerry Person and a correction uh, made by me. I uploaded a notice of vacancy that was missing from the record. For item number 10, two emails received regarding the annual community development block grant and home investment partnerships end of year progress report to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development and an interdepartmental communication received from Jennifer Villasenor, our acting director of community development regarding revisions to the consolidated annual performance and evaluation report. For consent item 12, a memo received from Shannon Levin, our council policy analyst regarding correction to the response letter to the Orange County Grand Jury reports related to animal welfare, and an email communication regarding that item. For ordinances for introduction, 
We received a memo from Captain Bo Swenfo with red line version of the changes to the Huntington Beach Municipal Code Chapter 10.84 relating to bicycle regulations and an email communication on that item. That's it. Thank you. Uh, City Clerk, do we have anyone signed up to speak? Yes, I think we have 13 signed up to speak. Great. Yeah, I'll make, I'll make this announcement. Number. Yeah, I'll make this announcement. Uh, actually, do the 10, and then I'll make the announcement. Okay, as they're coming down, sure. Yes, thank you. All right, I'll call everybody down. Um, Shammy D, Pat Goodman, Buzz McCord, Nora Peterson, Andrew Einhorn, Suzanne White, Tim Geddes, Amory Hansen, Zignesh Pader, Dina Chavez. Go ahead, Mayor. Thank you. Uh, at this time, the City Council will receive comments from members of the public regarding any topic, including items on the open session agenda. Individuals wishing to provide a comment may do so in person by filling out a request to speak form delivered to the City Clerk. All speakers are encouraged but not required to identify themselves by name. Each speaker may have up to three minutes unless the volume of speakers warrants reducing the time allowance. Please note that the Brown Act does not allow discussion or actions on topics that are not on the agenda. Members of the public who would like to speak directly with a council member on an item not on the agenda may consider scheduling an appointment by contacting the City Council's Administrative Assistant at 714-536-5553 or emailing the entire City Council at city.council at surfcity-hb.org. Thank you so much, and um, thank you for being here. I don't know who's starting, but Jamie. thank you so much for being here this evening. Hi, my name's Shammy D, and I'm here tonight to say some things that just need to be said. When the new council members were seated last December, people expected change, but I don't think any of us realized it would be a hostile takeover. This new council has not done what they promised to do, work on finances, keep the charter from being changed, make the city safer, listen to the public. Instead, they focused on things they never, ever mentioned. Raising campaign spending by 900%, proposing to overrule librarians and ban books, prohibit the pride flag, dissolve city commissions and substitute secret ad hoc committees, award huge increases to the city attorney's salary and staff, and propose cuts in services that residents really care about. Even proposing radical changes to the city charter, which they absolutely promised not to do. By completely ignoring the other three council members, the Fab Four are also ignoring the residents that they represent. We've had split, even very unbalanced councils before, but never one that was this autocratic. Really, council votes no longer matter. Tony decides what to put on the agenda, and those items are approved four to three or four to something, and we can't, and he uh, can't recall a time when the new members did not vote as a block. They ignore other council members, uh, just like they ignore public comments or requests for information. In fact, we no longer really have seven council members, we have one who decides everything. And he doesn't play by the rules, refusing to follow the published agenda, cutting off speaker's minutes to 90 seconds, which are stated at three in the city charter, and structuring the government so there is less oversight and accountability. Just last June, the new council blindsided the residents with a last-minute series of proposed budget cuts in city services, 
that they had never mentioned before. And then the next week, they solved it all by magically introducing two sheets of paper after the meeting had begun that balanced the budget and didn't cause any problems, although the approved budget has never been published on the city website. So now we know we're in real trouble. No one knows what the council will do next. Public transparency has virtually disappeared, and public input is a thing of the past. The city is planning to spend more money it most likely don't, doesn't have. We were led to believe that the Fab Four, which some people call Fash Four, uh, were fiscal conservatives who were going to focus on saving Surf City, not bankrupting it. Promises made, promises not kept. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Next speaker. Uh, I'm Mayor Strickland, council members. My name's Pat Goodman. And I appreciate uh, the report by Lieutenant Smith and the City Homeless Task Force that's presented tonight um, regarding the status of uh, these services and the behavioral health services in our city. I also appreciate the advocacy by identified in the report of the full council to capture funding and other resources for this important work. This report provides good data for decision making to address the housing needs of the city residents. Thank you. Uh, agenda item 10 appears to be a pro forma an annual report of restricted federal funds used to address housing and social service needs for, um, of our residents. This too is important data for decision making related to housing needs. I've read through this annual report for 2022-23 and I noticed references that the city is working on its housing element in pages 28 through 32. I believe it's been corrected and updated to reflect the reality that the city council has not adopted a housing element. This inaction has created an environment of economic uncertainty in our city and also puts code enforcement, vital programs for seniors, veterans, families, survivors of domestic violence, youth and the disabled in jeopardy and result in real negative impacts to our Huntington Beach residents. In addition to public safety, roads, parks, libraries, and reliable water sources, addressing the housing needs of the people of Huntington Beach ranks as the primary responsibility of the council. These policy decisions by the city council represent the essence of local control. I'm sorry to see that there has been no effort by the council majority to put a housing plan on the agenda since March when it failed to pass the housing element. Please pass the housing element to maintain control of zoning, security for residents, and economic development in our city. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Next speaker, thanks so much for being here. My name is Suzanne White. I've lived in Huntington Beach for about 15 years, and I worked for the Red Cross. And I never paid attention to local politics until people I trust pointed out to me that we have a Nazi sitting on this group. But I wouldn't want you to just take my word for it. I found a letter from the Anti-Defamation League, who are experts on Nazis. And to quote from that letter, there is ample evidence that Gracie Vandermark has made bigoted and hateful comments and that she has participated in activities organized and led by white supremacists, unquote. And, 
And the rest of the letter details some of that evidence. Whatever your party, I do not believe that good people support white supremacists. And I have one question for everyone in this room and everyone watching. I'm sure that 90% of you had fathers, mothers, grandparents, great-grandparents who fought in World War II to make this country safe for democracy. And we did that by getting rid of the Nazis. I want you to think about having a conversation with that relative, looking them in the eye and saying, hey, we have a Nazi on our city council. What do you think they would say? What do you think they would ask you to do? And I ask you to think about that and go out and behave accordingly. Thank you. Next, next speaker, thanks for being here. I'm Andy Einhorn, Huntington Beach, California. Most people use the okay sign as just okay, but in other cases, there's an additional underlying meaning. I think it's important to, for all to understand it's being used for promoting white power agenda. When used in context with other clear indicators of white supremacy, one can draw that conclusion. Let's see a pattern that occurs here. Vandermark is on the right, and one of her associates is showing the white power gesture on the left. Here's another picture. This is from the Cerritos newspaper. Someone flashing a white supremacist sign. This picture, Vandermark, is seen as number one on the far right. Notice the hand gestures in this picture. Last week in the Orange County Register, and I quote, Mosier questioned if Vandermark had denied the Holocaust had occurred and had associations with the Proud Boys, something Vandermark denies, unquote. Person number four, a.k.a. Johnny Benitez, to the left, wearing sunglasses, is a white supremacist and a former member of the Proud Boys. Person number five, Augustus Invictus, he is circled just below to the left of Vandermark, according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, and I quote uh, from Invictus, do I believe that six million Jews were killed by Hitler? I'm still waiting to see those facts. This person was also present when white nationalists shouted racist slogans such as blood and soil and Jews will not replace us as they marched on the University of Virginia grounds. Vandermark is circled on the right. Pictures with her show, associates showing hate gestures. Is this normal? I contacted the city and no investigation was conducted about Vandermark, but instead, Councilwoman Mosier was censured. That was farcical. Each of us has a purpose and there are times and causes that demand our initiative and responsibility. It's now the majority's duty on this council to cease protecting one of their peers and do what is morally correct by establishing an external independent review of her conduct. We want the truth. We will accept the truth. Why, does, why doesn't the majority Seconds. fear establishing a committee? Thank you. Thanks. Next speaker, thanks for being here. I second that.
Um, my name is Nora Peterson. I live in Huntington Beach uh, the last 35 years. In uh, 1865, a young girl named Alice fell through a rabbit hole into a fantasy world. I fully relate to Alice and imagine her saying that our city council meetings have become curiouser and curiouser. The fumbling four Tweety Ds and Twiddly Dums have campaigned on protecting our city charters and now they're bent on destroying them. The same four warn that our city will face a budget shortage, yet strangely, these four want to take over the elections of the city from the county, which is a process that will co cost taxpayers millions of dollars in each election cycle. Even more frightening is that one of, our, of the proponents of taking over the election is our mayor, who had to pay a $40,000 fine for election campaign money laundering and fraud in a city much like ours. The four repeatedly say that citizen safety is of prime importance, yet they've taken a dangerous stance against masks and vaccine that will imperil us all. The four has hugely increased the city attorney's salary and funded assistance for him because of the size of his workload, but now the fumbling four expect this poor, overworked lawyer to vet all the new books purchased by our public library. Ah, and the public library, the traditional source of knowledge, research, and new ideas for all Americans since Benjamin Franklin, is now believed to be promoting pornography designed to groom our populations toward deviancy? And the human rights statement serving our community for decades is now being reduced to white Christian nationalist rag. Shame, protect our charter. Alice calls Jabberwocky, meaning incoherent or nonsensical, and surely it is. Next speaker, thanks for being here. Hello, my name is Dina Chavez. I'm here tonight to talk about our public library and the high cost of banning books. The North Dakota State Library estimates that just for their library alone, it will cost nearly $3.3 million to reassess their collection to meet the vague specification of book ban ordinances. In Harris County, Texas, 40 book challenges in one single library have cost over $30,000. The book banners of Llano County, Texas, lost a First Amendment lawsuit brought by the people of Llano, wasted $185,000 of taxpayer money, shut down the entire digital catalog, and threatened to close the library altogether because a judge made them return 15 books. In Francis Hall, Missouri, a single book challenge now costs nearly $575. There are millions of books under review across that state. And Granite, Utah was forced to remove 94 books from the library shelves due to the complaints of six people at a cost of more than $100,000. At a hearing at the Utah State Legislature last October, it was revealed that $20,000 was spent to review 10 books in just one single library. Some Florida book banners have decided to outsource the work of the book ban committee to artificial intelligence at a cost of between $34,000 to $135,000 annually. The AI keyword searches have now banned the dictionary. The local Rotary Club in Sarasota, Florida was told that their annual donation of 300 dictionaries to local libraries and classrooms could not be accepted until the book ban committee has read them. Meanwhile, the shelves are nearly empty and not a single new children's book has been purchased in almost two years. If you have a child or grandchild that reads above their grade level, Florida has a ban for that too. Children in some Florida schools are only allowed to read at or below their grade level. 
and imagine the surprise of parents in Dripping Springs, Florida, when they learned that they had to acquire a special library card for their teen to have access to classics such as Jane Austen's Emma and materials from the nonfiction selection, including books on history, science, art, and literature required for their schoolwork. This is just a small sample of the cost and chaos that this council seeks to inflict upon the people of the city, all based on a lie that was told here on the night of June 20th when the mayor pro tem had blown up a photo of a book that she claimed was available in the children's library, knowing full well that it was not, nor was it ever. None of the four of you said anything about this at all. I'd like to know how much you plan to spend on these book bans. What about the eventual lawsuits? Have you budgeted for any of this? What about the security? So libraries across the country have received bomb threats due to the exact rhetoric that we heard coming off this dais. Mr. City Attorney, why have you not stepped forward to defend our city libraries? If an outside group was attacking our library, defaming our librarians, and potentially costing the city millions of dollars, would you not step up to defend our city? The taxpayers of Huntington Beach, I believe, you to, expect you to defend our city institutions of personnel. Is that not what we pay you for? I expect you to defend this city. Thank you. Next speaker, thanks for being here. Um, good evening, Mayor and City Council. My name is Tim Geddes, and I'm a 40-year resident. In an, in an informal definition of a dog, is something that performs poorly or is not going to fulfill its intended purpose. At the so-called special meeting of the City Council last week, ostensibly to discuss the proposed charter amendments for the March primary, a meeting that wasn't so special, we never got the chance to discuss them. What we've seen of the proposed amendments are a jumbled and juvenile mass of mediocrity, in other words, dogs. And who let the dogs out? A council majority who is clearly so unfocused and unprepared to conduct serious intercourse on the topics that it wasted the entire evening for all concerned. Some have sagely contended that this is just political theater, but if so, it was theater of the absurd. This is the council majority who couldn't shoot straight. And regardless of what side of, what side of the aisle you sit on, it was amateur hour for governing a city of 200,000 that makes us look foolish. We should not be run by a TikTok council majority with tan shoes and pink shoelaces, no matter the spectacle. Now, I, I don't want to be overly critical of our local government because at this time, it's the only one we have. But things must improve. I would advise the city council majority to abandon its quixotic quest to mess with our ch city charter and spend over a million dollars of taxpayer funds with money that isn't theirs. Even if the revisions are so poorly drafted that all of them fail, the money still would have been spent and the citizenry would be poorer for it. We need to focus on real brick and mortar city needs and not ideological pie in the sky issues. Despite all, the despite all your razzle dazzle right wingery, you have not provided leadership and representation to the community on things that are, which are important to us. You must earn credibility in order to spend it. You have many questions raised at the special meeting to respond to on Thursday. We need answers to some, or many people will continue to dog you further. Thank you. 
Thank you. Next speaker. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, I was, uh, I'm going to call this, lest we forget, I was on a business trip to Southeast Asia a few years ago when suddenly on 28 January 2020, everyone in Hong Kong started wearing a mask. COVID aerosol transmission had just been confirmed. I had to make some adjustments. I dropped travel to Guangzhou, China. I continued into Vietnam just ahead of the border lockdown. In Vietnam, there were signs everywhere telling people how to wear masks, to distance and sanitize hands. And everyone, every hotel, every public space complied. I flew home in late March at LAX, no masks, no COVID signs, no sanitizers, bedlam. The White House was making total stupid COVID bullshit statements. Within four months, the US COVID death toll passed 100,000. Transmission and sickness were poorly understood. June 26, Texas and Florida stopped reopening as their numbers exploded. I watched on TV as El Paso hospitals used refrigerator trucks as morgues. By early December 2020, COVID had killed more Americans than four years of World War II. Lest we forget, seems appropriate for your thinking about COVID and the mask, no mask mandate you're considering. By the end of 2020, 346,000 Americans had died of COVID. For the same time period in Vietnam, there were 35 COVID deaths. The U.S. went on to lead the world in the rate of COVID deaths. Our COVID toll is currently past 1,175,000. Masks and vaccines play a critical role in reducing COVID, like x-rays, cell phones, and chemotherapy. That's a scientific fact you can rely on. Life and epidemic policy is complicated, but if a person wears a correct mask, the correct way, her chance of passing COVID to a loved one is reduced as much as eight times. Her chance of receiving COVID is reduced five times. COVID mutates readily, hence common sense, the thousands of variant numbers and names. If a more infectious and more deadly mutant happens, and it can, we will need to mask, sanitize, and vaccinate intelligently. Your proposed resolution, no mask, no vaccine mandate, makes the Huntington Beach City Council and us look selfish and ignorant. You all stop at stop signs. You all obey speed limits, I suspect. Good for you, good for me. If you must wander into epidemiology, then resolve to make Huntington Beach an intelligent mask and vaccine city. The no, mates, man, no mandates policy is narrow-minded, short-sighted, and unnecessary. It's also stupid. Thank you. Next, next speaker, thanks for being here. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. My name is Mr. Amory Hansen. I'm speaking tonight in support of item 17, the ordinance to clearly define electronic bicycles and apply regulations to them that also apply to bicycles. Mr. William Shakespeare once said, quote, a rose by any other name may smell just as sweet, end quote. So it was with the horse, the carriage, the car, the bicycle, and now the electronic bicycle. All of these tools of mobility have expanded our ability to travel in Huntington Beach. Roses have thorns, but with careful handling, one can prevent injury. Clearly defining different methods of mobility and applying regulations to them will ensure that all of us will be able to ride our bicycle safely by providing the necessary tools to handle the small, unfortunate individuals who choose not to follow the tools of the road. Let's continue to support successful mobility in Huntington Beach. Once again, I urge a yes vote on IM17. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Next speaker, thanks for being here.
Lovely to speak here. Thank you for having me. Good evening, everyone. Uh, it seems like everyone's kind of getting down on the current council and kind of using the tools that they have at their disposal right now. And many people kind of forget uh, this four years ago, maybe three years ago now, that it was the previous council that opened Pandora's box, so to speak. Um, I don't even have to think off the top of my head. I just know that when a million dollars was too much money to have a flash election or to even give the runner-up fourth place in a seven-month prior election, we had to go ahead and follow suit with the Holy Charter because it was so special to us. And rather than honoring the 40,000 votes that we had for that seat, we go ahead and put Bolton in there instead. Who hasn't even voted with the majority? She's obviously voting against the majority. A 40,000 a seat that had 40,000 residents vote for it would actually be voting with the majority. It seems like you're only representing yourself in that regard, Bolton. But more on that later. It's also noticeable that this huge expenditure of a million dollars was so much that we then were perfectly capable of spending 365 million three months later on this project that no one was asking for. Isn't that kind of weird how that keeps happening, that hypocrisy that keeps coming forward from your guys' previous administration or council work? And by all matters, we support Gracie in this. That's why she got to the position she's in. And it's even more plainly obvious that how a person of color can be considered a Nazi. I've watched millions of hours of footage, and I'm never going to see a brown person in any of the Hitler's Nazi videos. Sure, it's in black and white. You might get me on that one. You can't see color on that. But leave it to you guys, all of the representatives here who are defending Nazism, yet they are so afraid of this white supremacist. Last I checked, white supremacists are the ones covering their mouths and face because they are so ashamed of their ideology. Gracie's been up there perfectly straight, no problem whatsoever. It's, it's just so blatantly obvious that the attacks are all going one way. It was a previous council that had no problem promising one thing and going the opposite. And now this current administration council is doing exactly what we wanted them to do, which is putting max mandates and Mac vaccine mandates out the door. We shouldn't have to be forced to be following things that we don't need to. The last person here spoke about Vietnam and how great it is over there that they had so few deaths. The reality was is that they were using colds and flu cases to go ahead and hyperinflate the COVID deaths. Where did the flu go in the past years of COVID? No one knows. Gosh, it's just, it's just this constant, constant re-reiteration of the same talking points. We can't even go forward because we're still arguing about the same past situation. We know right now fully that the people support the council majority, and they're going to continue to do exactly what we want them to do. So thank you again for your leadership. Thank you again for taking a stand for what's right, our individual rights and freedoms. Ten seconds. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. All right. The final list of speakers, Neil Custer, Russell Neal, Gina Clayton Tartan, Gina Clayton Tarvin, sorry. Cindy Marion, Ken Inouye, Patricia Pappas. Thank you for being here. Hi, thank you. My name is Cindy. I'm a resident homeowner here. I wanted to talk a little bit about the bicycle um, ordinance that you're going to be discussing and probably passing this evening. I read it through uh, several times as well as all of the amendments. I don't have it in front of me, so I apologize if I misquote in advance. There were a couple things I hope that um, 
you discuss when you look at it. It makes reference to two-wheeled or three-wheeled vehicles. Down at the beach, they rent four-wheeled vehicles, so I don't know if those are considered bicycles, but maybe you should add that if that was inadvertently left off. Um, I got a little confused on the civil thing versus the criminal. Um, I'm just gonna call them tickets for convenience sake here. It seemed to me that it said only criminal tickets could fight it and that civil people, basically, if the officer gave you a civil violation, you were gonna end up paying a fine and there was no means to dispute that. And I, I just don't think that's correct. I think the officers are unfamiliar with the um, riding skill of the driver and since you've got speed and speed limits and things like that involved, that really, depends a lot on the driver, and anybody that gets pulled over and cited in any way should have an opportunity to dispute it rather than just have to, to pay a fine. That's my opinion. Um, I wanted to comment on the part about um, kids doing wheelies. I just, gosh, I just would hate to be the city that has uh, an ordinance that has violation for kids doing wheelies in their neighborhood and just riding and having a fun time. Also wanted to mention um, some positive things I think the city council could do, which is to encourage property managers to have plenty of bike racks on their property. Uh, for instance, the post office on Atlanta has zero um, bicycle racks, and you know, you ride your bike to the post office, there's no place to even lock it up. I could give you lots more examples, but I only have 56 seconds, so I wanna make sure I uh, get everything in. Um, there is a section in there about 25 miles an hour being considered as a consideration of what could be um, poor, bad riding. I'm not sure of the term. You know, I ride on streets that are 40, 45 miles an hour speed limit, and I ride in the bike lane. I have 6,500 miles ridden on my bike in this last year, and 4,500 of those were ridden in the city of, of Huntington Beach. So I speak with some experience. I frequently ride faster than 25 miles an hour because I'm a strong rider and because I'm a safe rider. I have a motorcycle license. I know what I'm doing. And I don't think that uh, the city should have a speed limit Ten seconds. in general for bicycles. It should be um, in correlation with the speed limit where they're being operated. Thank you for your consideration. Thank you for being here. Thank you. <clears throat> Next speaker, thanks so much for being here. Uh, good evening, Mayor Strickland and members of the City Council. My name is Russell Neal, and I live in Huntington Beach. I would like to speak tonight on the subject of human dignity. Human dignity derives from the fact that man is created in the image of God. When we do violence to any man, we do not only offend that man, but God who made him. In fact, the reason capital punishment for murder is required is because the murder victim carries God's image. I might add that character assassination by unfounded defamation is also a sin akin to murder, which God will judge accordingly. Furthermore, since we bear the image of God, we do violence to that image when we ourselves sin. We honor that image when we act in conformity with God's moral law. 
Knowing we each carry the image of God is not an occasion for pride, but for fear, for fear of desecrating that sacred image. We must also remember that the image of God is not just in the individual human person, but in the union of male and female in holy matrimony. The desecration of that holy union by various forms of sexual sin and transgression is an assault on the image of God no less than is murder. To assert that those who confirm to God's moral law and those who habitually violate it are deserving equal dignity and honor is a capital error. We are told in Scripture that government is sent by God for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them that do well. And we are further told that if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. If we want to uphold human dignity, therefore, we should not limit ourselves to issuing mere statements, but by conforming all of our personal conduct and all of our collective legislation to the moral law of God. Ten seconds. Thank you. <clears throat> Thanks for being here. Thank you. Next speaker, thanks for being here. Thank you. My name is Perry Clithero, and I'm speaking about items 1 and 17. I'm thrilled to see this issue coming up. I've lived in Huntington Beach my whole life. I've ridden my bicycle on and off. I'll be honest, it's always horrified me. I ride the correct direction, and besides the fact that we don't have bike lanes on huge swaths of the city, I currently commute down Adams every day. I'd love to ride my bike every day to go to work in Costa Mesa. I'd love to not be part of the congestion and get in everyone else's way, but there's huge swaths where there's no bike lane. So I'm riding my Prius every day, and you have to get stuck behind me instead of me being on the side of the road. Um, so I'm a huge fan of one, even though I didn't see Adams on there. So I hope that gets addressed in the future. Um, and on 17, I think the language might be a little vague, but I'm excited to see enforcement be a priority. Too many bicyclists, I think the biggest issue is they go the wrong way. Uh, that I find that very frustrating as a rider when I'm going the right way, especially if it's a kid, I feel quite obligated to look and to put myself into the line of traffic when there's a kid coming at me. And to be honest, that freaks me the heck out. I feel like I'm playing the lottery every time I ride my bike and it's not the kind of lottery my fiance enjoys. So I appreciate you guys giving attention to this issue. I do hope you continue to readdress it and maybe uh, work on the language a little bit down the road, but I know that can be a work in progress, so I'm just, I'm very supportive. Thank you all very much. Thanks for being here, thank you. Mm -hmm. Next speaker, thanks for being here. Hi, my name is Neil. Um, first, thanks to Mr. Neil for clearly illustrating the issues with the policy on human dignity. With supporters like that, I don't really know if you need detractors. So, as was highlighted last Thursday by a number of speakers, there's a clear lack of compelling justification for a number of the proposed charter amendments. I sincerely hope that with a week to prepare to respond to the questions regarding cost, legality, structure of elections and personnel, legal liability, and the evidence of any past fraud, there will be more consideration put into the next charter session. In addition to opposing the wasteful proposals for charter amendments to be on the upcoming ballot, or potentially, hopefully not, upcoming ballots, I want to again raise my concern regarding the city's lack of compliance with the state's housing regulations. 
we are set up to be engaged in multiple costly lawsuits against the state over the housing element, over attempts to preempt the builder's remedy, and the assertion that our status as a charter city will allow the city to override state legislation regarding housing policy. I don't know if you've been paying attention to the ongoing legislative session in the current state Senate, but this is not a winning strategy, and it's not in the best interests of Huntington Beach residents. As has been noted in recent sessions, we are headed towards a projected budget deficit. Do we really have the money to waste on costly litigation, including potentially more, ooh, more, potentially more attorney's fees, awards uh, of attorney's fees, rather, like the Kennedy Center? How does this benefit residents? When the city loses, it will also lose any oversight over housing development ordered by the state. I would much rather see the city develop a productive housing plan now than throw away money fighting losing battles against the state on appeal against future developments. Um, I also do want to note, uh, oops, regarding the uh, bicycles, I think it's you know a good idea for us to look more at ways we can make the city more um, you know friendly to bikers, pedestrians, to non-vehicle traffic. Um, I mean, we're in a great location. We have incredible beaches. Um, we're Surf City USA, and I think we really should be embracing that more, trying to make this a more, you know, welcoming, a more um, open, a more available community. Um, you know, again, with the housing thing, the more that, or the less housing we have, the higher the prices are. I know homeowners love that. It's terrible for young people. Um, you know, everyone has to move out because there's no housing available, the prices are so high, um, and that's really a shame. Um, so I think that really we should make housing a primary, our primary focus, and we should look at ways to leverage that in the planning process and make sure that we can be involved. Because the alternative is, you know, we lose a ton of money of lawsuits to the city, and, or to the state rather, and we lose all control over planning. And I mean, I don't know how many people would be happy to see 12-story buildings down by the beach, Personally, I would kind of love that, but I know that a lot of your constituents would really, really hate that, and they'd hate to lose the seconds. ability to have you know, any part of that process. So I hope you'll consider moving forward with the housing element on future, at least have some discussion on the council with it, um, and get things underway. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Next speaker, thanks so much for being here. Good evening, Mr. Mayor and honorable members of the city council. My name is Kenny Noe. I'm a 50-year resident of Huntington Beach. I like Myself, like many of the people here this evening, attended the first bylaw committee meeting. And I'll, well, first of all, I'd like to thank you for having that. But although the bylaw committee meeting didn't give us as much information as we like, it did produce some very significant facts. The fact that I think everybody in this room would like to know what the potential cost of the bylaws are. I think one of the things that's been missing in a lot of discussions by the city council is developing a budget and a cost so that the people and even yourselves can understand the financial impact of decisions on our treasury. In addition, I made a special request at the meeting to have a, an accounting of the fully, un, uh, un, I guess the free reserves that would be available for, for paid for these kind of costs in addition to the other costs that the prior gentleman mentioned because I do think we need to move forward in a fiscally responsible manner because it does affect all of us if we should have financial problems in the future. Again, I look forward to a very productive session. I look forward to a very open dialogue. I hope that there'll be a lot of listening in terms of what people's opinions are. And I want to thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Next speaker, thanks so much for being here. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor and city council members. Um, as I was sitting there, uh, I was really appalled by the, the constant attacks on the, the four newest 
city council members who are, we were calling the Fab Four. But there's so many names and so many slanderous uh, issues being thrown their way that are not substantiated. But I wanted to also talk about some of the great things that they, they've done and, and successfully since they've been in office. I mean, they tackled a JPA, supposedly green energy, and, and, and saved us a lot of money and saved us a lot of problems down the road. Um, they also saved the air show, which brings in $120 million of revenue to the, to the local economy, which was ready to go uh, somewhere else because of the lack of support they had here in Huntington Beach. Um, and it was funny how when we talk about the Fab Four voting as a block, I never hear anybody saying anything about the three, the vote as a block all the time, and no one says a thing about that. So I don't see them going back and forth. There's only very few issues where all seven look at the same thing the same way. But it's usually four or three, but I never hear a complaint about the three block, which is a big issue. The flag issue. So the United States of America has had our flag since, since 1777. That's 246 years ago. That represents all of us. And if we can't see that, we have a problem. It's a, it's a banner that the whole world respects, at least they used to until just recently. And I think that uh, we need to continue to look at it that way. But we just had that birthday, 9-3-1777. Um, also, we've allowed uh, our city attorney to be able to fight the fight and, and fight for Huntington Beach without allowing Sacramento to just beat up on Huntington Beach and take shots of us and just let us just take things as they are when constitutionally we're in the right. Also, when it comes to the charter, they're firming things up. There's some issues that need to be polished up there's some problems, and they're addressing those issues. We might not all agree with them, but they're addressing some of these issues. They've also allowed HBPD to enforce anti-camping laws. If you've noticed, there's less issues around the city with homeless. That doesn't mean it has gone away, but it's being addressed, and it's being tackled. It's really important that we look at that. Also, the mask mandates, without us being forced to have masks and being forced to, wear, to have vaccines, it's absolutely ludicrous for somebody to always stand up here and say, well, scientifically, they have been, it's been proven that they're successful. Well, show me one scientific data or one specific report, university report, that actually substantiates the mask. The mask, again, the virus is a thousand times smaller than bacteria. The mask that Mr. Kalmick said a couple weeks ago that uh, we didn't have a mask issue, we don't have a problem, and then all of a sudden he's wearing a mask again. That's like a chain link fence. That's like that's like a mosquito being. It's like a chain link fence blocking a mosquito. It just does absolutely no good. But it's a sign of compliance. That's very good. Um, also, the library. There's no bans on the on the Ten library seconds. books. The, there's guardrails. Okay, so it's, we have to stop calling it a ban because that's not what it ever was and it's not what it is. And so let's just be truthful. Thank you very much. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Next speaker. Next speaker. Thanks so much for being here. Hello, Mayor. Everyone else. Uh, Chief Para is supposed to be sitting down here every single week, I mean every other week, and for the city council, and he's always gone. There is, the seat's always empty. He's over here or somewhere else. Why is he not, he doesn't have to? It, this doesn't make any sense. Please, I mean, he should be over here like everybody else. Everybody else is responsible. The, uh, the helicopter crash. They told us that Chief Paris said that he was going to be open and transparent, and I haven't seen neither, and it's been over a year and a half. And he still doesn't show what, what happened. And if somebody kills a cop, they're supposed to go to jail, they're supposed to, it's an execution. I mean, it's, and I don't get this, that there was a person, it wasn't the pilot, the pilot was someone else, another cop, and he killed a hero, apparently, because you guys had a huge procession. 
and then and everybody protected that cop. Nobody even knows who it is. I, I think that he's supposed to show us exactly what happened. I mean, he gets it. He ends up getting four new helicopters that we had to pay for. I mean, this is getting ridiculous. And they're playing in the helicopters. The helicopters at night at two o'clock in the morning. I mean, come on, guys. Seriously. I mean, this is like this isn't like escape from from New York. Or I mean, it, helicopters all over the place it, it, in the middle of the night, and the drones. Please, people, look up and see how many drones that they have. This is nuts. We got to stop them. They, this is nuts. They, they had they got allocated twenty thousand dollars worth of batteries every year for drones. You know how many drones that is for twenty thousand dollars? I mean, and the per oh, this is insane. Please, I mean, isn't he supposed? To please have accountability and tell us exactly what happened with the helicopter, because I know that the person, I mean, if I killed Superman because I got stoned or something, and then I killed a hero, I'd be responsible and I'd pay the price. But I mean, hiding the person and then, and then pretending that he's the pilot, that doesn't make any sense. That isn't right. We gotta make sure that everything's, I mean, this is fair. I mean, and equitable, everybody, everyone is equal. If he's done something wrong, let him account. It's been a year and a half, guys. And then, seriously, it, please, and it, it, the, the helicopters, two o'clock in the morning, come on. Seriously, they did it. They did it for a couple of weeks. Just, it's a psyop. Where what they do is that they play, they have them up in the air for a long time, for seven days straight. And then after that, they cut down to nothing. And then they do it again a couple of weeks later. And then, so you get acclimated to this. And then pretty soon, they're up all night. Why? I mean, when I called up and asked. Ten, ten seconds. When I asked, they said, it's police activity. How long do they have to be up? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, last call for Gina Clayton-Tarvin and Patricia Pappas. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Mayor. Good evening. I'm Gina Clayton-Tarvin. I'm the Vice President of the Ocean View School District Board of Trustees, a 27-year teacher, a mother of two, and a 30-year resident of Huntington Beach. I'm here this evening for three very important reasons. Number one, to share my abject displeasure with your mishandling of the proposed charter amendments. As you know, the Ocean View School District has sent a letter expressing our deep concern regarding the charter amendments, and we urge you to disband your actions to place the amendments on the primary ballot in March 2024. You promised the residents of Huntington Beach that you would protect the charter at all costs. And you, Gracie Vandermark, specifically list this promise on your website in bright red text. Audience, Please get out your phones and Google her website to view her broken promise. She lists protect the city charter as her number one priority, and here we are just months after the election, and she's already broken her promise. You, Ms. Vandermark, you, Mr. Strickland, you, Mr. McKeon, and the missing Mr. Burns, you're all missing the point. You're breaking your own promises to the voters. We see you, and we will hold you accountable. Number two, I'm suing the city of Huntington Beach and city attorney Michael Gates specifically for failure to provide me with the airshow settlement document. 
I filed a California public records request for the document and was refused by City Attorney Gates's office. Mr. Gates himself claimed on the record during a recent update at the Senior Center that releasing the document could compromise this city's litigation against the oil spill perpetrators. The problem is, no such lawsuit exists. You have run out of excuses for denying the people. Please produce the settlement document so we can see exactly what you have gifted your friend and campaign benefactor, Mr. Kevin Elliott. Please follow California law. It is not that difficult. We see you and you will be held accountable. Third and last, Mayor Strickland, I must address your complete lack of understanding of how to run a public meeting. I recently learned something quite telling. I learned that the city clerk's office writes you a script for every meeting for you to follow for the entire meeting up at the dais. What's unreal is that you repeatedly tout your past state legislative expertise in the Assembly and Senate, Ten yet seconds. you do not understand the basics of Robert's rules and parliamentary procedures. We see you, and we will hold you accountable. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Next, next speaker, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Um, I'm glad to be here to speak with you, honorable council members. Um, I'm Patricia Pappas, been, lived here more than 43 years, and I had no idea that I lived with, um, there's a lot of people that are not telling the truth, and I just, yeah, I just, I just, a lot of people that come up here and speak at this podium, so I thought I would kind of get up here for a couple of minutes. When I got involved in this work of, of actually got involved in the recall, I had just retired from a college professorship. And I was a big volunteer in schools, and I thought, I heard something about our, there was a bond purchased in our city, and it was not purchased, it was not voted on by the members of our community. Now my experience as a teacher, we always had to vote on the bonds. So that really bothered me, I became involved, and I learned through the process that we were losing about I think it's a ha in taxes. The, the, the other council purchased, I guess they thought they were, I don't know what they thought, but they purchased these two buildings. And because of the way that they did it, there wasn't a vote. And also, we were losing a half a million dollars in taxes every year. Okay. So when I'm looking at this charter amendments that are coming up, I'm thinking we've lost a lot more than it's going to cost to put the charters on the ballot. Lots, lots. The other thing that I was thinking about is voter um, election and having uh, people show their ID. At the last election, I went to the Orange County Registrar of Voters and worked just for a day, but as an observer. And what I observed is I watched, first of all, people need to sign their ballots correctly. I watched many, many people working. I watched one group pass one ballot to six different people because they could not tell if this, this signature was correct or not. I saw them looking at, oh my gosh, computers, it was just a mess. They were sending 
They were sending uh, ballots back to people. They were showing up at people's homes to check their signature. We need voter signature, even if Huntington Beach is just the example. Library books, people are saying they're not pornographic and obscene. I've looked, we've looked, we have a whole team of people. They're down on the low shelves for the children. It's, it's a really scary process. We are not, a group is not banning ten, books. 10 seconds, 10 seconds. Not banning books, but looking seriously at what needs to be done. And then, um, I just appreciate it. I can walk downtown with my husband now and not be worried. Thank you, thanks so much. That concludes public comments. Okay. So members, let's uh, go down the agenda. Um, Council committee appointments, does any member have anything to announce? Seeing none, AB1234 reporting, anybody have anything to report? Seeing none, openness in negotiation disclosures. Yes, Mayor, I met with the Firefighters Association on September 15th. Uh, I also met with the reps from the Huntington Beach Firefighters Association. Anything else? Seeing none, city manager. Uh, city manager, please introduce your report on file item eight. Thank you, Mayor Strickland, members of the council. Um, this evening, Lieutenant Brian Smith and Jessica Kelly, social services supervisor, will be presenting to you a uh, quarterly report on homeless. Thank you. All right, thank you, Mr. Zlinka. Honorable Mayor and Council, I'm here to present an update on the city's homeless response, covering the second quarter of 2023. While our teams have made great progress, I'll utilize this time to highlight some of the efforts and areas of focus. In April, at the request of the City Council, I presented a plan to address homelessness in our community with an emphasis on three areas, improving communications, auditing our programs, and increased focused outreach efforts. Improving communications with the community will be un one element we must continually explore and expand upon. I've worked with city staff to update information on the HB Homeless Solutions website, and our goal is to consolidate the Homeless Solutions site with the city's governmental site to make it a one-stop shop. Lieutenant Smith? Yes. Sorry, do you guys mind, because this is like really important, um, this presentation is part of the rolling 90-day plan on homelessness. I think it'd be more efficient if we ask questions while he's going through it than going backwards. Are you guys okay with that? Really? All right. Okay. Some examples of what we've done to improve communications include placing messaging and water billing statements regarding our homeless services, collaborating with the Downtown Business Improvement District to increase awareness of resources, monthly collaborative meetings with city and county resources whom we work with to address homeless-related issues, we started a quarterly collaborative meetings to bring together our local groups actively involved in addressing homelessness and our vulnerable populations within the community. We also participated in a community cafe event where we held a neighborly conversation about homelessness, a discussion which led to us hosting the National Alliance on Mental Illness Orange County in our own voice presentation. One significant element of our plan was the business outreach conducted by the police department's homeless task force. Business outreach is important because we need the assistance of those responsible for private properties to address issues occurring on their properties. As an example, a private homeowner can permit or exclude somebody from sitting in their front yard. We, as the police department, cannot prohibit or take enforcement action unless somebody responsible for the property states 
an individual cannot be on their property and they support prosecutions should the individual not leave after being requested to do so. This holds true for private commercial properties as well, especially locations open to the general public and it presents challenges on businesses that are open for 24 hours a day. During the visits, officers discuss current issues, including issues occurring on or around that specific property, the rights of property owners, and crime prevention through environmental design. During the second quarter, officers visited over 100 properties, and during that same time, we received over 123 illegal lodging and trespassing enforcement letters for private property in our city. As of July 1st, we had 272 active letters on file, a 50% increase from the same time last year. Next. In regards to increased focused outreach efforts, staff has been engaging in regular case conferencing with Mercy House staff in the Huntington Beach Navigation Center. We have utilized overtime to help facilitate client support outside of our traditional working hours. We filled two vacancies within our social services unit, increasing our ability to serve the community. We also reached out to the Orange County Healthcare Agency to seek support in addressing mental health care and outreach efforts in our city. I've been to other regional meetings and everybody is asking for more support from the county. But through our efforts, we're able to secure additional Orange County Psychiatric Emergency Response Team per clinician staffing from one shift a week to two shifts per week. During these shifts, clinicians ride with officers and assist in a variety of ways. The county's outreach and engagement team also increased their dedicated staffing availability from one shift per week to one and a half. Another step we took was sending all of the police department's downtown patrol unit officers to a certified homeless liaison officer course, which makes them more prepared to interact with our unhoused community. Additionally, the HB CARES program now has 18 trained and vetted volunteers. Lastly, one item I'm excited about the prospects of is city staff met with CalOptima to discuss expansion of the street medicine program, which is currently being tested in Garden Grove. It will offer preventative services to CalOptima clients within the city, reducing the impacts on emergency services and improving quality of life for those users. While selection of participating cities will be done through a competitive process, I believe we as a city have demonstrated our commitment to assisting the vulnerable populations, making us an ideal candidate for this program. Next. Auditing our programs. While auditing our programs, we identified a case management system for our social services team which is currently being utilized by the North Orange County Collaborative. We are working with the city's Information Services Division to integrate this program into our structure. Regarding BeWell, since the city began using BeWell Mobile Crisis Response Team, data tracking and management was being handled by uh, one of our amazing staff members, Celeste Coggins, in planning administration. However, this was a role in addition to her regular duties. We recently transitioned her duties into our unit under Homeless and Behavioral Health Services where staff can more easily identify uh, data collection needs from a social services perspective. At the time I created this slide, our BWL mobile crisis response team was down one team. However, I'm happy to announce we are now fully staffed and BWL is providing seven day a week coverage, 21 hour a day, uh, covering from 6 a.m. till 3 a.m. the following day. For, just for the community's awareness, one reason it's taken so long to get to that point is we as a city require a robust background investigation for all BWELL staff, uh, similar to what we put police officers through, which even for somebody with a pristine background, takes some time. We do this because we wanna trust that the right people are engaged in our community. While reviewing our team's performance, we did identify that transports were being underreported, and this was simply due to unclear definitions. 
This has been rectified and disposition codes have been clearly defined. Mercy House, who operates our navigation center, we've had two meetings with their CEO to address concerns such as timely invoicing, neighborhood outreach patrols, and increasing successful exits to housing opportunities, as well as getting our volunteers into the navigation center. Through our discussions, we realized some of these issues were related to turnover of staff, while some were outside um, the scope of their duties that were impacting the barriers that they were facing. Invoicing was also several months behind, but thanks to our city's community development staff, they worked closely with Mercy House one-on-one -on -one to complete the complex billing and reporting needed by our funding sources. Increasing exits is an area where we continually work on. At the end of this presentation, Social Services Supervisor Jessica Kelly will discuss some of the barriers impacting the ability to get people into housing. However, one component that we are steadfast on is ensuring Mercy House is holding clients uh, accountable to their individual plans. And we've also started getting our volunteers in the navigation center, which is receiving positive feedback from the clients. One area I'd like to address not listed on the original plan is advocacy and funding. I would like to thank staff and our city council for recognizing the importance of our programs and actively advocating for funding and support at all levels, including communications with other elected officials at all levels, reaching out to third-party service providers, speaking at community meetings, and even offering to personally assist with our outreach efforts to our business community. Some of the highlights that directly impact our taxpaying community include staff meeting with our federal SAMHSA grant coordinators and receiving an extension into fiscal year 23-24, which helps offset cost for our BWL mobile crisis response team. The grant allows us to fund up to 40% of our covered program cost. However, since our costs were kept down over the first year, or over last year, we only used about 300,000 of this grant. This extension allows us to remain, to utilize the remaining funds in the upcoming fiscal year, again, saving our community money. We also received notification that $1.1 million in funding was secured from the state of California to support operations at the Huntington Beach Navigation Center. As noted by Mayor Strickland in past council meeting, this was done through the efforts of Senator Daveman and Councilmember Kalmick. From the police department, although our overall calls for service increased, which is expected as we transition into the summer, we actually saw a slight reduction in calls for service involving individuals experiencing homelessness over the first quarter of 2023. Our homeless task force officers, which again is comprised of four officers, made 543 contacts, resulting in 40 navigation center referrals, 10 referrals to other shelters, and two subjects were transported to crisis stabilization units. They handled 135 MyHB complaints, which ranged from property left in public spaces, requests for assistance on private property, to notifying or notifications of individuals that may be in need of our assistance. Our homeless and behavioral health services team had an 11% increase in contacts from the first quarter, while referrals to the shelters went down. This reduction can be attributed to our efforts in the first quarter of 2023 to get individuals into the shelters once COVID restrictions were lifted countywide. And shelter referrals take additional time uh, and dedication of staff over non-shelter referral contacts. As a reminder just to our community, our team assists those at risk of being homeless or those um, and those experiencing homeless, and we cannot compel anyone to accept any of our services, including shelter. Our BWO Mobile Crisis Response Team assisted 434 unique individuals during the second quarter. 
Be Well is not a homeless-specific service. However, they do provide services to our unhoused community. 60% of Be Well's calls handled through requests from the community and our public safety partners involved individuals experiencing homelessness. Between calls for service, instead of having the team wait for calls to come in, we ask that they proactively check locations throughout the city where individuals may be in need of assistance, including areas such as our public parks, Pier Plaza, and our city beaches. Through these efforts, they made 1,287 total contacts, 93% of which involved experience, individuals experiencing homelessness. In all instances, 91% of BWL services did not require a co-response from public safety resources, keeping those resources available to provide services to our community. The Huntington Beach Navigation Center had an average capacity of 95%. While we have been operating at or near maximum capacity, we do have the ability to refer clients to other service providers, such as the Yale Navigation Center. In the second quarter, five clients were housed, and while that number appears low, there are barriers impacting the number which we're working to address. I can give an update that last month alone, we had four individuals housed out of the Navigation Center into some uh, housing. And that's just by the Navigation Center staff, not including our social services staff. While the ultimate goal is to get people housed and self-supportive, the Navigation Center assists in other ways and helps reduce the impact of homelessness on our community, the clients, and community resources. I've been asked what would happen if we didn't have a Navigation Center. One easy representation of this impact would be if we did not operate the Navigation Center, we would have an immediate increase of six and a half unsheltered individuals per square mile. Next. And for barriers, I'd like to ask Social Services Supervisor Jessica Kelly to discuss the barriers we are facing when it comes to housing clients, as well as to share some of our success stories. Thank you. Some barriers to housing stability are finding landlords who are willing to accept the vouchers. When they are accepting vouchers, they're still requiring uh, tenants to make two to three times, um, for their income to be two to three times the rent, even though rent is guaranteed. Credit scores are also factored with the vouchers. Um, another barrier is individuals matched to rapid rehousing through third-party organizations are told their income is not sufficient for the units that the organizations are having them view after being matched. Finding support for the clients uh, who are newly housed while they assimilate back into society is another barrier. The first couple of months are crucial after somebody is newly housed and there are not enough services uh, to assist them during that time. Lack of communication between outside organization and organizations and accountability for follow-up is also a barrier. Some success stories over this quarter. Uh, we worked with a veteran who is a senior citizen. He had poor physical health and was a high utilizer of emergency services. He was connected to a housing opportunity through the VA. Um, it also came with supportive services, and our social worker connected him back to his social security benefits. He is now housed in his apartment and has a steady income coming in. Proactive engagement of a 73-year-old female sleeping on a bus bench in Sunset Beach. We were able to get her housed within two weeks. We used the senior housing placement, placement hotline, and they placed her into a room for rent based off of her income. Collaborative assistance between city and local faith-based groups to assist a formerly homeless adult at risk of eviction due to unpaid utilities. 
We also worked on a budget plan with him before we utilized this faith-based group so he could continue to pay his utilities moving forward. Senior center staff, homeless social workers, and local faith-based group assisted a couple living in their vehicle with locating a housing opportunity. They were referred to the senior center for food and uh, hygiene items and as well to their resource center to look in their uh, rental binder where they found a room for rent. We contacted the faith-based group and they were able to pay their move-in costs. So they are now housed. What I appreciate is through each of those success stories is utilization of different services that are out there in the community that work together with our team to accomplish what our goal is of getting people into housing and to be self-sufficient. And that's on a huge effort from our community and one of the benefits of having our own team. Next slide, please. Overall, with all of your support, our team is making a positive impact on the entire community, including housed, unhoused, our business community, and visitors alike. And we look forward to continuing our collaborative efforts to address the impacts of homelessness. Thank you for your time. Councilman McKinn, you had a question on that? Oh, go ahead. Okay. Mm -hmm. I'll start. First of all, thank you for putting this together and for all the work you do. When we first were elected, we kept getting emails about people not feeling safe downtown, people not feeling safe going to the park. And although there is a problem, it's going to take a while for things to get really settled down. There has been a significant difference. Our police department has gone above and beyond to make sure that they respond to some of these um, calls. We get pictures. When we forward them to you guys, thank you so much for getting people out there. It's noticed. The community's talking about it. Um, so I couldn't be any happier. Um, also, uh, one of the residents that was housed, that success story, um, to see the look in her face of how happy she was to finally have a home outside the shelter was priceless. Um, so thank you for taking care of that as well. Um, I did have a question on one of your slides, number eight. Um, you said the number of homeless went down. To what do you attribute that decline? It was page, hold on, let me see. thought it was eight. Um, so they handled, uh, I'm sorry, the number of calls, 1,881 calls, and then the numbers went down from 1906 in the first quarter. To what do you think factored into that? It's more of anecdotal belief, but I, I think it's all of our efforts together, uh, all of our teams between social services and our public safety teams, uh, getting out there and making the impact uh, is having an overall impact on, on calls for service. So more than likely you guys being proactive and taking care of things before the calls are placed. Yes, and that comes from, as I said, Be Well, social services, all the resources we have. Uh, reduces that calls and then keeps our officers and our fire personnel, marine safety available to handle the community's needs. Thank you. And um, are we still working on trying to put together some kind of a work program? Is that still being researched? So we are still exploring several programs. Most of them do come with a cost and we understand we have to be a steward of the, the community's money. So we're trying to find alternative ways and uh, ways we could fund those, which there are potentially some grants down the road that we could use to fund those programs that would get people out of the navigation center into the workforce and doing programs in our community. Okay, well, thank you again. I mean, um, sorry I keep sending you the pictures, but the minute people send them to us, we forward them to you, and thank you for taking care of that right away. Thank you.
members. Thank you, Lieutenant Smith. Um, it's a lot of work to put this together. I know a lot of residents recently have said that we're not focused on issues like the homelessness, but we do so on a daily basis. I think I talk to you almost daily. So um, like the mayor pro tem said, I'd, just from feedback we've gotten from the community and I think the eye test, um, we're having positive results. Of course, there's a lot of work to be done. It's a very complicated issue, um, but we work tirelessly at it every single day. Um, so if you don't mind to go through the presentation, can you actually put it back up on the screen for the viewers at home to, to look at it? And then can you guys go to slide three? So just on the city's website, um, when do you guys think that'll be done in terms of updating it? The city's currently in transition process of uh, switching the websites. Okay. So I'm not sure what that timeline is. Um, but we can get back to you on okay. that. Just roughly, I'm just, a lot of questions here. And then, are you guys gonna use the dashboard that was used previously? Yes, that was updated yesterday. Okay. There was a slight delay when we did do the transition uh, over to Homeless Behavioral Services. Another thing we're doing is, previously, the service providers would send us the data and we would create the charts. Okay. We've been working with the service providers to give us a product that is ready to present to the community to save staff that time so we're not reduplicating their work and creating more work so that we have more available time to focus on our, our primary duties. Okay, because I know one of the real big challenges is just coming up with these metrics that we can measure. So are, is this dashboard gonna have metrics on the website that people can see? It's, the data's already up there that shows okay. our contacts and everything. What's hard with defined metrics is what are we comparing them to? Right. For instance, other cities are seeing doubling, tripling of their, their population and needs for services. So it's hard to compare. We will do comparative of showing what's going on in our city. However, it will be cyclical as it's gonna be expected to increase in the summer months, decrease in the winter months. On this slide, you, ha you uh, have a bullet point on standardized definition of terms. So like what terms are standardized and then who, who uses them? So like is, you know, is the Homeless Task Force, Navigation Center, and Be Well all using the same standardized terms? So what I did was we're in the process of creating uh, operations manual for all of our teams. Okay. And in it, the first key component we worked on, and that was at the request of the council, was getting the standardized definitions established for a lot of the common terms that are used across the board. So we can share that with all of our partners and ensure they are using the same definitions for the same terms. Perfect. Let's see. Uh, you have on the commenced quarterly community uh, meetings, like who's involved with this and is that information available to the public? So can we participate? So it's, we get together a lot of the uh, faith-based and community groups that are actively engaged in assisting the homeless and our at-risk communities and bring them together. It's an invitation that's sent out through our volunteer services coordinator. Okay. And if anybody would like to participate in that, they can just get a hold of our volunteer services coordinator, Virginia Clara, and she can assist. Perfect. Um, business outreach. Um, is there any more involvement from the city prosecutor with those individuals that are you know, resisting service, like repeat offenders, et cetera? Yes, we have a great relationship with our community prosecutor. In fact, tomorrow morning we have our monthly meeting with them to review um, successes, what's working, what's not, uh, and to see how things are working. And it's been very successful. Good. And we're seeing a lot of successes even at getting um, alternative sentencing. As if somebody is successful in getting a navigation center and getting assistance, 
that were able to um, you know, assist them with some of those open cases they had that were related to uh, their housing status. Okay. Can you guys go to uh, slide five? So you have the um, filling of the two vacancies. I guess what's the current staffing level for the task force? Uh, case managers and then be well and then I guess are these the ultimate goal levels why or why not yeah we the only thing we're lacking right now we're in the testing process of is a homeless services manager which will be essentially my counterpart on the city side uh, managing the social services uh, that recruitment what's done we're in the middle of the testing and hopefully that decision will be made within a couple weeks um, and I think in the future, I, ha I have visions of where I think we could take our program of having somebody specializing in our transitional age youth, uh, a one person's focusing on our senior community at risk, um, which is a real vulnerable community, uh, just to kind of help bifurcate those resources to make sure we have specialized services. And I think the end goal should be to, to shrink this department as much as possible because we're having success, obviously, of uh, addressing this problem, and so it's not just continuing. So that's just something me personally, I think. Mm -hmm. The goal should be to bloat this department, but eventually shrink it because the numbers are getting smaller, hopefully. Um, on the HP CARES volunteers, uh, what are the, can you explain what the roles of those volunteers are? So one of the, the vital roles that they do is they help with our hotline that's coming in. So all the calls that come into the homeless services and our social services, they do the initial reception of the calls and help uh, connect people with services that might not necessarily need to do one-on-ones with our social workers, okay. and uh, they triage those calls. What about the dispatch number? Do they, is that their answer as well, or is that through the police department? That The dispatch number is different than the social okay. services hotline we have. I don't have that number offhand. It's okay. But we can get, it's on the website. Um, I'm sorry, what was the... No, that's fine. Can you, and for the public, I always tell them if, they're, if they see something in the community to call the, the, the uh, dispatch number. Can you uh, say what that number is? Yes, 714-960-8825. And one of my goals was always to have where the, the community shouldn't be triaging who they call. Right. So if they just call our police communications, the uh, communications operator will ask them questions about what the situation is and then attempt to identify what the best resource is for that, whether it's connecting to social services, be well, um, or another entity. Perfect. Can you guys go to uh, slide six? <coughs> Let's see. So the out outreach grid case management, can you just provide further details about what this is and then what it... So outreach grid is a system that was developed specifically for um, case management. What's nice about this program and is if we are able to get on with the North Orange County Collaborative, it'll really create a network of information sharing amongst the 13 North Orange County cities that participate in that, nice. which isn't what you traditionally think of North Orange County, it includes Stanton and North, Olip, Fullerton, and around. So it'll really link all of our resources because our unhoused community is transient by nature that they go around between the cities. So it'll give us a network of resources uh, to help determine what's the appropriate services for everyone. Additionally, it'll help pull metrics for us, be able to show us heat maps, uh, where our services are utilized. It's gonna be a great tool for documenting our activities and what we're seeing out there, uh, geotagging, adding photographs, and just make it easier to pull the information. Currently, everything has to be hand-pulled right. and managed, so it'll be, it'll be savings nice. for personnel. Okay. They said the data management was moved from planning to behavioral health services. So why was this moved, and then who is the person managing the data? So, Initially, it was just 
placed on um, Celeste Coggins, who had been doing it when all the programs were starting up. She's very great at data management and making the products okay. that are on the websites. But we felt it's more appropriate to have somebody in our social services team uh, that can look at it from the social services aspect and see what data do we need to capture, what's useful, and what more do we need to capture. And so one of our social workers, Annabelle Garcia, uh, offered to assist with that, is very analytical and thrives off data. So she has taken on that responsibility, and I'm very confident in our team of handling that. To me, that's like a really important part because if we're gonna be able to analyze if we're having success, the data needs to be consistent. So is that a top priority for, for her to make sure that all that data is consistent? Yes, she's already identifying areas where we can improve and increase our data collection. Okay. What's nice is when we do go to Outreach Grid, that'll help a lot because it is a right. standardized format utilized by other cities within our county already. Yeah, it's perfect. Like you said, the standardized is key. Um, be well, you know, how many vans do we have? Right so now? we've always had two vans okay. and for a while we only had uh, three teams. We were covering up to six days a week the 21 hours a day, then the final day on Wednesdays, we only had 10 hours. We currently have the seven day a week, 21 hour a day coverage. So we have one van that operates from 6 a.m. till 6 p.m. The second van comes on at 3 p.m. and works until 3 a.m. And then, you know, we, we always get questions from the community about like what they do. And I've mentioned before, I was with you on their campus and I believe it's orange. I was very impressed because it's like a private sector solution to this problem. So can you kind of walk the residents through how they, take a big burden off the police department, especially um, when you know individuals have to go to the hospital, so you guys aren't having wall time? Yeah, they, they assist us in many ways. They handle, they're a crisis response team to help people in moments of crisis to help bridge them to appropriate services. And that may be uh, just sitting down, talking to the person, counseling, or giving counsel, or transporting them to one of the crisis stabilization units within the, the county, or their own Be Well campus where they can get sobering detox. They're also utilized a lot in our, our schools and throughout the community to really handle those calls that I think we all looked at and the community probably looked at and go, why is this a police officer's call? Why is this right. a firefighter's call? For instance, if somebody's laying on a bus bench, that used to be a call that would most of the time generate a response from two police officers in a fire engine, and uh, which is you know the four firefighter, uh, engineer, captain, firefighter, paramedics. That was a significant response in would utilize our resources. Whereas now our Be Well mobile crisis response team can go in there and identify what is the problem if it does need a formal or more formal response from our public safety resources. And I've talked with uh, Supervisor Wagner about this. The county uh, views them and very favorably as well, you know, and so they're looking to really kind of embolden them. I know they're building like a 20 acre campus in Irvine, so it's having a good success of taking that burden off of you guys. Um, to the net same slide on the navigation center. What are some of the services and on-site providers that are available at the center? You wanna take this one? Uh, at the navigation center, they have a SOS mobile medical van come out every Friday. Um, they also help clients get vital docs, they utilize the HMIS system to connect them to housing opportunities. Um, they connect them to mental health services. Um, they had a, what is it? A homeless court came out on site and saw people. We wanna continue that what there is, as What well. is that? So homeless court is an alternative sentencing program or alternative program through the Orange County court system. 
And previously, the individuals would petition to have their case heard in homeless court, okay. and it would help connect them to services, hold them accountable, and help them uh, get through their cases. Homeless court is now offering services where they are coming to the navigation center to help those that might have uh, misdemeanor cases, and they assist them through that process nice. and can handle it there on site, saving the individual from either having to go to wherever the, yeah. the jurisdiction was, whether it's Westminster, Harbor, North Court, and Fullerton. Do you guys think we'll continue to, to grow the amount of service providers? Yes, that is our goal, and we're working with uh, Mercy House to expand those. And I know that's one of Chief Paro's uh, primary goals is constantly to ask us, hey, what are you guys doing and what are we going to do more of? Because I believe like, the more services we have on site, the more people are going to be able to navigate through the system, right? Yes, definitely. Um, do you guys have roughly like how many people have been turned away from a referral because the center is full? Does that happen often? We don't have that number offhand. Uh, it's typically if they're if our center's full, we will offer to uh, refer them out to the Yale Navigation Center, or one of the other sites. Okay. But yeah, we just want to you know prevent them from navigating through if it's, if it's yeah if it's full. Yeah. Um, and then what's the maximum amount of length of time they're allowed to stay at the navigation center? Is it still six months? So six months with extensions as long as they are working toward their their plan. Okay. We have been successful at reducing the number when in January, I think when we first looked at it, there was some that had been in there since the shelter navigation center opened. Right. Uh, those numbers have gone down drastically. Do you know what the average stay is roughly? I do not have that offhand. Okay. I mean, obviously the goal is to, you know, get them through to the services. Um, and I guess people have questions about this, but what are we using to confirm a, a connection to the city for the individuals? So we look at, uh, Variety. It can be if they can show pay stubs, mailing addresses, uh, call to verify relatives that are here, uh, and then our general knowledge of persons when we frequently encounter them in different situations. Because we've had some residents say I don't, they don't understand why you just can't go to the navigation center. Can you explain why you should go to the intake at the police department to verify that first? So there's several reasons why we don't want people walking up to the navigation center. First and foremost is... Uh, to ensure that it is an appropriate facility for them to come in through our social workers okay. and we will match them up to the um, appropriate service provider that would be the best service for them. It may be Illumination Foundation, one of the county programs, there, there's several out there. Second is the impact on the community. We do not want to set up a situation where people are loitering in the area waiting for a bed as that would have a negative impact on the, the surrounding area right. in general. Um, and overall, it's just being able to do that verification and limit the impact on the operations of the navigation center itself. I've had people make the comments that it doesn't look like there's anybody in there. It looks yeah. empty. That's our goal. Right. That means it's being successful, not making an impact, negative impact on the community. Right. And then what happens if the individual does not have a connection to the city? That's when our social workers will work with them and try to find an appropriate facility. Okay. And we've had success getting people referred even into LA County services all throughout Orange County. We don't just limit it to Huntington Beach only. Okay. Uh, slide seven. What's the an, uh, annual city budget allocated to homeless behavioral services and is this amount more or less than last year? I would have to go back through the budget presentation. I don't have those numbers with me. I mean, do you think it's roughly more or less? I don't have the, okay. any idea. We'll come back with that. Um, and then, you know, with Tony's help, we'll continue to advocate for state bills that help address, you know, these issues like you guys mentioned. Um, slide eight, second quarter. 
Um, Gracie touched on this a bit, but calls for service are down slightly, but the my HB complaints are up 8%. What do you guys attribute this to? Awareness. Awareness, yeah. Of education, of getting the word out to the community. Uh, we've done some social media posts about that as well, nice. just showing the benefits of it. Uh, recently, there was one on the police department's website about a clean up the railroad tracks that was specifically due to a community report via MyHB. Okay. Um, let's see. Is the 11% calls for service, is that more or less than the last quarter? Uh, that's about average. Average. Um, this whole year, it's ranged from 10.3% in January to 12, 13% in March, and then it decreased down. Um, actually, July, it went down to 9.9%. Okay. Uh, slide nine. You touched on the decrease in navigation center referrals. Um, but I guess why, why the decrease in referrals to other shelters, in your guys' opinion? I think it all comes down to our efforts that first quarter yeah. to get people housed that were willing to accept it. The, since then, it's been more of those that we were putting the directed effort to that might be resistant, um, unsure, uncomfortable, and it takes some time to get people comfortable with accepting the assistance right. and wanting to reside in a congregate setting. Okay. And then on that chart, you guys are showing that the unduplicated contacts, um, are these all fresh? Unduplicated contacts per month? No, that's all month-to-month -month unduplicated. So somebody could come to us in January, February, March. And we still can do continued case management with those that are in the navigation center. Sometimes they come up for additional referrals or to ask questions about other service providers out there. Okay. And you said uh, you, you guys facilitated housing for six individuals. Are these the six that were part of the five that are counted in Mercy House's number on page 10? Or are these separate? Separate. That's nice. directly from our social services team. Okay. Uh, the 13 individuals in detox facility, um, you know, how do we increase this number? And then does it ever happen where people that are interested in going to the detox facility can't get an available bed? So that has happened. Some of the times there are um, requirements that if they are too intoxicated or too impaired, that they need to go to emergency medical facility first because that's the appropriate facility to get them to a point where they could go into it. These are all voluntary programs. Okay. So again, they have to be willing to accept it to get in there. So probably just to be well, maybe to encourage more. Yes, than, yeah. and we use, it's between be well, our, our staff on the streets, um, including social services officers and fire, okay. uh, fighter paramedics that do that outreach and encourage people to seek those services. Because if they go through um, one of the crisis stabilization units or be well, there are additional services connected to that. So they're not just in there to sober up and kicked on the street, right. they are connected to other services. Okay. Uh, slide 10, be well. Um, can we get a breakdown of the services that are provided as it relates to that, that 1,825? Do you guys have that information? I don't believe I have the total breakdown on hand with me, other than I have the transports. Do you have for July? I have those that services were provided to 24%, um, which is resources or referrals. Uh, 218 was just initiating contacts okay. where the individuals didn't want anything else. 73 transports, uh, supplies provided to 17.69%, uh, 10.9% okay. uh, refused services from them, and um, 21% of the calls that they were dispatched to 
subjects were uh, gone upon their arrival, okay. which that typically would have been the community calling in saying, hey, there's somebody that appears they need assistance. Right. By the time they get there, there's nobody there. However, their average response time is 10 minutes. Okay. So that's a fairly quick turnaround on, on anybody's standards. No, that's a good breakdown of, what, of their services. Um, and they're roughly like, do you know the percentage of, of their contacts that require like follow-up? I do not have that number. Okay. Just again, trying to find like metrics that we can measure from. Um, last slide 11, um, provided 2,742 uh, supportive services. Um, can you kind of describe what those services are? So that is the housing navigation, the meeting with medical services, county providers, okay. uh, EPATH, different programs that are out there. And so clients can go to multiple programs throughout the year or throughout the month. And so that's why that number does look high, but um, they do receive multiple services per client. Okay. And then you guys mentioned the house five clients. Are these part of the homeless task force clients? Or are these fresh? Independent clients. Nice. Yes. Okay. And as I said, we've already surpassed that number. And then uh, people have some questions. Just can we get a quick update on the Jamboree process, uh, for, you know, for the long-term plans of the Navigation Center, where they are currently? Uh, we are actually meeting with Jamboree Housing tomorrow to discuss uh, conceptual ideas of that project moving forward based upon the, um, the council's direction. Okay. And then do we have any, uh, like, rental assistance programs? Um, you know, I've been talking to some people, like, you know, this could be perfect for someone that, like, has a job. They've been placed in a house and then prevents them from, you know, slipping back into homelessness in order to break that cycle. Do we have a program like that? that there is some programs. They're handled outside of our unit. Okay. By who, though? Like the county? Uh, no, the city itself. Okay. And then um, just kind of touched on it earlier, just how do we, like, maintain maximum success and efficiency without bloating this department? Um, just the, I think these, these metrics and these standardized terms, how, how can we continue to really like look back and make sure that we're having success and getting the, this number down? What do you think? I think we just have to keep steadfast yeah. moving forward, um, doing our efforts. Uh, you know, we, ha we have a great team that is dedicated to, to this mission, to the purpose, just supporting them and letting the, the numbers, the results, or you know, speak for themselves and what the community has seen. It is gonna be a, there's always gonna be a fluctuation in the numbers. We're not gonna be able to, sure. you know, um, get down to that zero, but getting to functional zero is our goal so that we have those services in place. And I, you know, like Gracie touched on, I would just really appreciate all your guys' work. It's, um, I mean, we get calls every single day and people are, are pleased and I know you guys are working around the clock to have impact and I just, really think when we get these standardized terms and these metrics consistent across the all the all the different groups that we're going to be able to look back and measure if we're having positive results besides just the eye test so thank you guys and i appreciate you uh, bearing with me to go through all these items thank you sir yep. councilman oh i'm sorry who wants to go first Okay, thank you, Mr. Mayor. So my questions uh, relate to pages eight and nine on your presentation. So if you could go, go back to slide eight. Um, for the 543 contacts, um, basically shows that 52 of them were referred elsewhere. Um, so what happens with those other contacts? Can you give me some examples of what happens? So the disposition of those contacts could vary. It could be enforcement action, it could be warnings, it could just be outreach to try to build those relationships, to build that trust so they are accepting of services. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. On slide nine, on the table on the bottom right, um, I just wanted to clarify something. If, if you um, 
interacted with a person, say, who was a veteran and over age 62, would they be counted once or twice in um, that chart? Twice. Okay. Yeah, we would qualify them for both. Okay, thank you. That's it. Just to follow up, um, and so it would be three times it would be veteran over 62, male or female. Yes, and one thing to note is the homeless numbers. Again, we do help those that are at risk of homeless, so that does impact that number as well. Who's up next? Thank you, staff, for producing uh, this quarterly report. I think it's obviously extremely important for the residents to understand uh, what the city council and staff have been working on for many years to try to resolve a systemic issue that's happening across the country. Um, I think it was somewhat addressed, but um, the progress of the biggest barrier I think you had up there was moving folks out of the navigation center. Like we've got a, several kind of spinning plates and um, you know, obviously housing affordability, mental health, the number of things cause folks to fall into homelessness and so if we can keep people housed, obviously it seems very important. Um, the tenant-based rental assistance program, which is on our consent calendar for a little bit later tonight, I think is the, the item that may be outside your department that I think you were re reaching for. Okay. Um, but that's pretty maxed out, right? We, we hit the top on, on that. I think we can talk about that if that gets pulled from the agenda. Um, the um, other barrier would be housing, right? That we, the navigation center numbers tend to be high and folks are staying there a long time because we're having trouble finding housing for them. Is that correct? Correct, finding appropriate housing, and when they do get vouchers, finding places that will accept them based upon their credit history, uh, the amount of money that'll be, the vouchers will cover. Um, and then just overall, there's a stigma that's out there that um, people are hesitant to uh, open their, their rental units to um, individuals that have been experiencing homelessness, right. even though most of them, once you get to know people, are there's professionals, educated individuals, that it's not, um, it's the stereotypical image. I hate to even bring that up, but people have this image in their mind of what they are, and that's not what we see a lot of. Right, right. I mean, rent with rent being like three thousand dollars a month for that showing up with nine thousand dollars in income a month seems a little aggressive for someone that's unhoused currently. Um, the status of converting the navigation that you talked about Jamboree a little bit. Um, we talked about having some of these services and would be well campus obviously that was something that was contemplated for for beach boulevard there and the fact that people aren't even asking i get asked all the time you know what's that tent on beach boulevard or i mentioned like yeah, our navigation center it's that tent on beach oh i had no idea what it was right um which is great i mean it's, that speaks to the the forethought of not having a walk-up shelter um so we're running out of time on having to complete something on that site. So the meeting with Jamboree will take our last decision from a couple of months ago and start to materialize that. Are we, we have about 18 months left before, or is it a little bit longer? So that's for the five years of the use of the Lemmy Half Funds to yeah. convert it, yes. So about 18 months left? Uh, now, yes. So, okay, so we have to, do we have to be in done ribbon cutting mode, or do we have to have like planning dollars? From what I understand is moving forward, Planning. Okay, so we just have to be, you know, we have to have an application in at that uh, to the city effectively yes. to, to do something with that. Okay, um, right, uh, care courts. You know, we've been those are supposed to be up and running next month. Like October was the deadline for Orange County. 
do you have any more information for us on those, or is this, the county still has no idea what they're I, doing? I have not received any additional information. Okay. I will say that we attended a community community court recently in support of one of our local residents who, who completed it, who had hundreds of arrests leading up to uh, his entry into community court. And since he got into that program, zero contacts with law enforcement and successfully graduated that program and uh, indicated his cases that were pending. I think that's a different program, though, because yes. the care courts okay. haven't started yet, right? I'm just saying, yes, there's okay. several other programs out there that the, the county does have. Thank, thank you for clarifying that. Um, yeah, and then it was great to hear about homeless court, right? That's something I think we should really be talking about. I, when I get the police log in the morning, it's kind of disappointing to see all of the arrests of homeless people for being homeless, um, and that that just seems to potentially add on to their the burden of becoming unhomeless uh, or, un, or housed again. And that's one of the benefits of working with our community prosecutor is we don't arrest people per se for for being homeless, um, for the illegal lodging, the um, other violations that are out there that are commonly attributed to uh, those experiencing homelessness, that we work with our community's prosecutor's office to help people through those and then through the different court programs to give them a chance to step up, become self-sufficient, and address those issues that led them to being in that situation to ultimately be arrested. Okay. Um, and then I think Councilmember McKeon talked about shrinking the department numbers to, to effectively, you know, as low as possible. And I think I do want to hesitate on that type of comment because it could be the same idea if you stop taking your medicine because you feel fine and it's the medicine that's actually solving the problem. So I want to be very careful that we don't dismantle something that is keeping the homeless, that is solving the homeless problem and getting to effective zero because we have a pipeline of a navigation center or homeless task force or be well that is moving our folks that are falling out or preventing folks falling out of homelessness and those that do into a system that then gets navigates them through into uh, either permanent supportive housing, temporary housing, and while they're working on getting their job back or back into the regular housing force. So I do want to make sure that we're cautious that we aren't just shrinking for the sake of shrinking. Now, once we get to effective zero, which I'm confident that with the staff we have and, and the progress that we're making that we can hopefully get there. Um, but I want to make sure that we don't just say, okay, we were zero, let's, let's shut it all down, and then we're back up to where we are. So I, I do want to be, be careful of that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so thank you again so much for um, for all of the, the data and information um, that we you know, kind of continuing down this track of trying to do something that the county still refuses to handle it for us. Um, and, you know, I hope that obviously in every conversation that I have with county folks is asking them to please do more for the cities. Um, but I uh, applaud what, the, what staff has been doing with the resources that they provided to solve a major community issue. Uh, and we'll talk about the other community issue a little bit later in the day. So thank you. Thank you, sir. Councilwoman. Thank you very much. And thank you for all of the information and all of your hard work. Um, that you do day in and day out um, and bringing this forward to us. Um, I have a number of, of comments and questions too. Um, let's see. Um, first, um, I appreciate the city's uh, community prosecutor role the way that you discussed it, um, specifically in trying to help people really. Um, if, um, you know, a lot of the times people have many warrants and things on their record and they um, you know, they, they might have very well earned all of those, by the way, but sometimes those are the things that end up stopping them from being able to proceed to get housing. And if they're doing everything that they can and we're able to help them at least get those off of their record, I really appreciate that effort. So thank you for clarifying. I know that's not the only thing that they're doing, but I appreciate that piece of it. Um, 
In addition, um, you know, I was able to attend the last two community collaborative meetings, um, and it's been really great to see um, all of the faith-based, or not all of, many of the faith-based groups, um, churches, nonprofits, um, get together and talk on a quarterly basis. Um, I ended up coming because I heard about it through one of those groups um, both times, but um, I, I think that it's exactly what we were looking to do um, for a long time. So um, I really appreciate that that's happening, and I've seen um, the types of connections that need to be made by many of those groups. They, they go there and then they go and have coffee afterwards and develop a plan. I know some of them ended up in the Navigation Center doing uh, karaoke and other event, you know, things working together to try to provide, I'll still call that services, um, because it's still helping to kind of provide these different types of social services. So thank you for doing that. I did want to mention, though, uh, sorry, a little food there. <laughs> At the last um, collaborative meeting, um, one of the uh, church's leaders got up and spoke, and he talked about the fact that they are being stretched really thin um, with regards to people coming and asking for rental assistance, typically, and sometimes food. And um, could you just talk a little bit about that? anecdote that kind of came up in that last collaborative meeting? If you can't, I can. You got me stumped. That's fine. Um, so what, what happened was this gentleman said, I don't remember which church this downtown, um, they ended up, um, they get, you know, requests for help every month. Um, and normally they'll have a certain dollar amount on hand for that that are donations from their church community. Um, this last time, it was about $25,000 for the month that they had been asked for. And they had pretty much commented that that's not something that they could continue to do and sustain on an ongoing basis. So when I hear talk about um, this potential bloat, I, I get that. We, we want to make sure we're being efficient with our resources. Um, but I, my concern is, is that based upon the challenges in the housing market and, and various things, People are feeling a massive impact due to the costs of mortgages and rents. And um, also with a lot of the COVID funding that was just stopped, um, you know, and also um, the, the rental, the eviction uh, piece of that as well, those constraints. We're likely to see a lot more people who are potentially going to be homeless. Um, people that you wouldn't think. Um, and that when you look at them, you wouldn't assume that. Um, there are a lot of things where people are talking about um, where they're not eating or they're choosing whether to pay rent, mortgage, or eat because they want to still appear as though they're okay as well. And so I think that that's something that we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about prevention as well. And with that, there was a, a UCI... OC poll that found that homelessness and affordable housing were the top resident concerns in Orange County, um, and that includes here um, in Huntington Beach, and specifically um, one of the people that was at their event, they talked about uh, more than half, 52% of respondents who are renters have worried in the past year about being able to pay their rents and the threat of eviction, while one-fifth of homeowners, 20%, have worried in the last year about being able to pay their mortgage and the risk of foreclosure. Housing expenses as a percentage of people's income is probably at an all-time high. So the idea that people are particularly concerned about this right now doesn't shock a lot of people. Um, and then essentially we're potentially at the precipice of this becoming worse. 
Um, you know, with that too, I know we looked at a lot of the, the data points, um, which I appreciate. You know how I like the data. Um, but one thing that I think we don't include if we're thinking about the city and as a whole um, within that is um, the number of people who are homeless in our schools. So I pulled the data down from 2022. And I don't think a lot of people think about this because a lot of them think about just who they see on the streets or maybe in our shelter. Ocean View School District has 448 students, 6.5% of their population for 2022. Huntington Beach City School District had 32, which is 0.7%. And Huntington Beach Union High School District had 440, or 2.9% of their population, who are currently homeless. And those are the McKinney-Vento numbers, so it's totally different um, counting. But I just I think it's important that we think about that. If, if I could add, please um, do. I also happen to be the police department's manager of our school resource program, and we recently just met with all the, the superintendents of the five school districts that serve Huntington Beach and offered our services, both from a social services standpoint and be well to be there for their, not just students, but also staff that might be in those situations that need our assistance as well. Mm -hmm. And we will be attending a meeting next month, uh, I think Westminster School District's the first one we're meeting with, where we are gonna present to all their social and uh, social service staff and uh, school psychologist to let them know what services we have as a city to assist them. I appreciate that. Thank you for providing those resources to our schools and kind of acknowledging those larger numbers that we have. Um, I wanted to, let's see, also you talked about, um, well, two things. I appreciate that you helped participate in the community cafe, a neighborly conversation on homelessness, and also the NAMI presentation that came out of that too, so people can have a different conversation about this besides just um, you know, we all want our quality of life, but having a different understanding of people's stories, I think, is really important and can kind of change the discussion um, around homelessness and how we want to better serve our community. So thank you for that. Um, you also talked about, let's see here. Um, let's see. I'm on the wrong page, but that's okay. I know what it is. Um, the uh, Garden Grove program with the street um, street medicine. Can you talk a little bit more about that, like what's happening right now and what we're looking at? So it's, it's a preventative medicine or preventative care program where uh, they will have medical staff proactively going out to assist those uh, who are in need of services. I believe the number for Huntington Beach is 40,000 um, residents in Huntington Beach take advantage of or utilize CalAIMS. Mm -hmm. And it would offer services to the most vulnerable population to help them get their medications, get to appointments, um, get them basic care and treatment so their only option is not going to the emergency room or calling the fire department for assistance and services. It's really a, a proactive approach to reduce the impact while improving the quality of care for um, vulnerable population. Right, and then Garden Grove is doing that right now, and is it basically is that kind of a pilot program, and then we're they're looking at it again in the future? Yes, for and that expansion, would come at no cost to the the local jurisdictions that they partner with. Great, but potentially a reduction in calls for service for other activities. Yes. Okay, that's excellent. Thank you very much. Um, let's see. Wanted to acknowledge the two-year anniversary of Be Well and HB. We were the first to have it, and now it's spread across the county. And I think I think most everyone would acknowledge that they're doing a great job um, as part of our system of care here. So just wanted to acknowledge that. Um, 
Also, the homeless court on site is exciting because I know we talked about that with, with the county and everything, and it's great to hear that they're able to come to them because a big challenge and barrier into um, correcting a lot of those things is getting to the courts, so to bring it to the Navigation Center is excellent. Um, one of the things that Councilmember McKeon mentioned was he was asking about um, having more services on site, um, which I think is great. I know SOS has been coming for a long time, um, and, but he had mentioned that the more services on site, the more we can navigate through the system. Um, and while I'm very excited that we have our Pathways project coming and uh, supported by this council, I think that it would, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that the original healing center approach, the whole objective was to get more services on site. So that way we could navigate people into housing and move past um, those challenges and those barriers that are there. Um, also, uh, a couple other things. Um, you know, one thing that was mentioned as well is by Councilmember Keen is that with Tony's help, we'll, it can advocate for more state funding. And I, this isn't a question, this is really more of a comment that um, I appreciate the connections that um, the mayor has, but I think if we pass a housing element, we'll have a lot more opportunity to have potential funding for state grants and things like that. And especially as we are looking to build a permanent shelter, we're gonna need a lot of that funding to come from various levels, including the state. So I think it's very important, not only with availability of funding for grants via the state, but also, again, the sheer fact that the, we need more affordable housing, um, and that having that affordable housing will assist in people being able to move past that barrier of not having available housing um, in our community. So uh, those are the things that we need to really think about. Um, you know, one thing that was noted before is that there were about 11% of all calls for service correct, and you mentioned it was even at nine at one point. Yes. And that that's kind of average over time for the last number of years? Yes, for the last couple of years we've been tracking it. Okay. I don't have the exact data, I only have this year's data, sure. but it typically trends around 11% of all calls for service okay. for the police department. Yeah, thank you. And the reason that I bring this up is I just want to kind of level set um, back to, you know, this work has been being done and the foundation set for a long time. Thank goodness we've had um, our social services workers that came on staff, I think, last December, November, right? Um, so I think that was part of probably the push um, in, in the first part of the year to really, like, get out there and I think really started connecting with the community. But just to level set back to things that were said in the past, um, you know, uh, Mayor Pro Tem during her campaign had talked about um, the that seven out of the eight calls that she went out on when she went on a ride along were for homelessness, and that very well might be the case. But I think when we talk about things like that anecdotally, that would turn into 87.5% of calls for service. And I would hate for people to think that that's what it was before and that it's at 11% now. And so I thank you for just saying what it was over the long haul. I appreciate that. Um, also in that same um, speech, it was mentioned that the navigation center was sitting there practically empty. And we know that that is not true, but you talked about a lot of people think that because we don't want a lot of people, um, you know, kind of just around the navigation center. So I can imagine how people could be, could misunderstand that. Um, but thank you for clarifying that. Um, you know, also, uh, I appreciate that we are having these quarterly updates, but I also did just want to re-clarify also that 
the 90-day plan that was locked in a drawer didn't exist, but I do appreciate these quarterly updates. They're very helpful, um, and I hope that we continue to have those um, as well. See if there's anything else. Love the fact that we're going to have the data um, and a system where we can actually work with that. Now, is that only going to be city? Um, like, and I know we're looking at the um, the North County um, uh, Spa, correct? Uh, it's Outreach Grid the out is mm -hmm. is separate from the Spa. It's a North Orange County collaborative. The collaborative, I meant. But um, I guess my question with that is, and, and I don't know that it, it would work at all, but part of the challenge um, is like who, who and how are we collecting information and sharing it? And like I know when we're talking with the collaborative, um, and I don't mean the North Orange County Collaborative, I mean the collaborative meetings um, with all the faith-based and nonprofit groups, um, I, sometimes I feel like they have information that we might that they might be able to input in things too. And I don't know if it's appropriate because I know there's a lot of different rules. Um, but can you speak to that at all? I think it's important to protect our data yeah. first and foremost, um, and then to really isolate our services, uh, not isolate our services, but um, collecting the data and personal information is something that should be entrusted to us alone. So there's no risk of the information being shared or getting out of there. Uh, if they want, they're always more than willing to, you know, share information with us that could right. be helpful into those systems. Most of them do require um, a waiver from the individual to even have their information in that system. Mm -hmm. It's it's always good to get as much as possible. We really need to protect that that data. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thank and you. What we would be using it for is our social workers, um, our outreach officers would have access to that. Then we'd also pair it up with Mercy House, the Operators Navigation Center would have access to it to give us a real-time bed reservation system as well. That's great. And, and thank you for working with um, the county to re-expand back into Yale and have access to those shelters too. For those that maybe, when it, two things, if, we, if our shelter is full or two, if people are not eligible to be at our shelter. So I appreciate that. And um, also wanted to um, just commend uh, the social services team, the task force, and um, and be well as well for all of the efforts um, to actually like move people from where, whatever position they're in to housing um, and like I know how much you go through to get to that point um, and it takes you know we talk about um, how many contacts and um, you know like from month to month and it sometimes I don't even know it takes thousands of contacts sometimes but that person's life is completely changed and Mayor Pro Tem talked about that too with the person who, who got housed um, and those stories I think change people's hearts and that being said having our volunteers for the HB Cares program uh, is going to be massive and especially as hopefully we get to expand what they do, uh, maybe even helping to remind people to go do certain things, to call, to text, um, just to have somebody to connect with them because you can't all be everywhere. And that helps with um, really efficiency of our program too. So, so anyway, thank you very much. I appreciate all that you do. Thank you. Anything else, members? Seeing, seeing none, thank you again for all your hard work and thanks for the hard work uh, on this issue and also the presentation. We really appreciate everything. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. All right, members, uh, we're moving down the uh, agenda. Uh, we have consent items number nine through 16, 
Would any member like to pull an item uh, 9 through 16? Can I pull 11, please? Okay. I'd like uh, to pull 12. Mr. Kalmick uh, pulls 11, and Councilwoman Bolton pulls 12. Any others? 10. 10. Okay, 10's been pulled by Natalie Moser. And I'll move the balance. I'll second. It, it's been the balance. So, so, Clerk, just a clarification, 10, 11, and 12 have been pulled. So we're voting on, it's been moved and seconded on 9, 13, 14, 15, 16. Second was Vandermark, is that correct? No, no, it was, it was Bolton. Bolton. Bolton, sorry. All right, so I'll go ahead and call roll. Councilmember Kalmick? Aye. Mosier? Aye. Vandermark? Yes. Strickland? Aye. McKeon? Yes. Bolton? Aye. Councilmember Burns is absent, so we're a yes on 9, 13, 14, 15, and 16. Perfect. Okay, members, we're going to go to file item 10. Councilwoman Mosier, you may open. You pulled the item. Sure. Thank you very much. I'm going to pull up the caper. Um, first, I wanted to um, appreciate the fact that we had the supplemental communication um, from uh, Jennifer Villasenor with the revised um, caper. Uh, I just wanted to um, you know, acknowledge that... Um, this it, this is about housing. This is about, um, you know, the tenant-based uh, rental assistance, all of these different pieces. Um, and, you know, without a certified housing element, um, you know, a lot of these things, it's like, if we have this, we will we'll proceed. And, um, you know, I, I just think that it's really important that we can't, I feel like it's kind of pretending that we're doing things. Um, I know we want to make sure we get funding for everything, and it's very important, um, but we need to um, mean what we say, and we can demonstrate that by proceeding with certifying a housing element, um, and we can do that at any time. I hope that we do uh, and drop the litigation that we're in the middle of. I do appreciate that the update is there with the redlined items. Um, and uh, I definitely will be recommending that we proceed with what we have, because it's important that we get the funding. Um, I, am, I am curious, um, there was a note on there, um, and maybe Steve Holtz might be able to help me with this. Um, it talked about not providing, I think we had four fewer people receive the tenant-based rental assistance funding than what was, I'll call it budgeted or allotted. Can you just talk to that so we can understand why? Sure. Uh, the tenant-based rental assistance program is a rental assistance program that the city provides through our home um, federal entitlement grant. The city uses that money to subsidize the rent of um, tenants in privately owned property. And one aspect of that program is a part of our homelessness prevention strategy. So it's uh, referrals. Um, through our outreach team um, and through several nonprofits that we work with. There's been challenges with that program over the last couple of years because of high rents in the city, low vacancies, and also because many landlords in the city, because of those factors, have choices um, uh, of who they can rent to and, and are preferring not to rent to uh, tenants with all of the requirements that come with our, with our program. So that's why the numbers did drop. Okay, not for you. lack of demand. 
Right. And then, um, so will that, that money will then roll over to next year, or how will that work? Exactly. And that action was taken by the council when we brought our action plan in April. Got it. Um, and, and just as I mentioned to people, too, um, if, you know, the Orange County Housing Authority Section 8 waiting list was reopened and it closes next Friday, and it's important for people to apply if they need rental assistance, and I think it is associated with this um, discussion, so um, wanted to mention. Can I just add on? So our, our tenant-based rental assistance program is a temporary emergency um, homelessness prevention rental assistance program. It only goes for two years compared to the Housing Authority Section 8 program, which is an indefinite rental assistance program. Otherwise, they're very similar in the way that the rental assistance is structured. So um, the Housing Authority only opens their waiting list every five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's a very narrow window for anyone who might need rental assistance to apply. It's important to do that before the end of next week. Great. Thank you very much. And I will move the item. I'll second. It's been moved and seconded. Clerk, call the roll. Councilmember Kelmick? Aye. Mosher? Aye. Vandermark? Yes. Strickland? Aye. McKeon? Yes. Bolton? Aye. Councilmember Burns absent, 601. Thank you. Uh, members now, file item number 11. Uh, Councilman Kalmick, you pulled the item. You're open. No, Kalmick. I did. Pulled 11. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, this, I have a couple of changes to this, so I think we can probably take the staff presentation if that's. Uh, sorry, sorry, Chief. I can. Good evening, council members. Before you this evening is a recommendation from our Harbor Commission. So uh, before you this evening is a recommendation from our Harbor Commission regarding uh, Title 33 uh, CFR 33.930, uh, uh, specifically paragraph 3, in regards to the public navigation channel for the Anaheim Bay. So as council may be aware, over the last few years, they've done some reconstruction and uh, the Navy has worked on to reconfigure uh, the navigation channel, thus making it more safe and more and, and pri priority access. It is the only access that we have to our harbor. Uh, currently. And so with that, with the, the Naval has opened up recommendations for us to provide uh, to them on how to manage the actual public navigation channel. And one of the things in there in particular that the Harbor Commission wanted to bring to your attention and request a letter from the, the mayor uh, to the Navy, it talks about motorized access through the harbor. Right now it allows kayaks, paddle boards, sails, basically human-powered uh, type uh, vessels to move through the channel. The Harbor Commission really feels like this is an unsafe practice going through there. They've had discussions with the Navy commander. And so we're really looking tonight to bring this to your attention, to bring their recommendations in a letter that's in the staff report, uh, to provide any, any, um, any questions or comments. Our chair of the Harbor Commission, Craig Schopner, is here, and our vice chair, Van Boris, is here as well, if you'd like to ask him any specific questions. 
Thank you, Chief. Um, so I, I actually talked to uh, Vice Chair Van Voris and, and Chief over the weekend um, to kind of understand. There was a couple of two call-outs and some inconsistencies with what the sheriffs wanted and uh, what the letter is of the intent was. And so the two changes that uh, we're contemplating were the adding uh, or removing um, from the amendment uh, uh, jet skis, because um, jet skis are licensed. Because um, this basically said that would have, or the recommendation would re remove jet skis from the uh, uh, um, uh, from the uh, prohibited craft to go through the opening. Now, all the personal like rowboats, anything you have to use uh, your body power for, getting through that tidal inlet is is going to be tough, and you're going to get stranded. And I think it just becomes an issue. But I th the larger issue also was um, the California boat or vessel registration. Um, striking the word California from there because there could be issues where you're coming from Oregon, coming into the harbor. I, I don't want to issue it. And zooming out, the issue is really being able to call the police on somebody doing something wrong. So um, the jet skis are, have a tag on them. They've got a license number. And if you're registered in other places, you have a license number. So uh, I think I talked with staff and um, uh, Mr. Van Voorhees and said that we could probably, uh, it probably makes more sense to eliminate the word California. Uh, and, uh, and add the uh, uh, jet skis back in there, or personal watercraft, because they are, they're all licensed, so that we have the most access to the coast. Because my other concern was coastal access, that if you prohibit uh, personal watercraft, where can you launch them, really, on, into the ocean? And it's like Long Beach or Newport, maybe. Like, it's really far. Whereas the personal, the rowboats, all the stuff, you can go launch them from the beach pretty easy. Not easily, but you can. <laughs> it's, it's easier to get them out there. So I didn't want to prohibit folks that, that have those jet skis that want to go out into the ocean in, in the harbor can, can get them, or can launch them out at, at uh, Sunset Marina and, uh, and do that. So those were the, the two changes. So I'll move the item um, with those uh, two changes to eliminate the word California. I just want to ask staff, you're okay with those changes? It seems reasonable to me. Yes, sir. Okay, I'll second that motion. So the term California and personal watercraft, correct? Um, yes, yeah, so removing the term, um, yeah, effectively. I think okay. staff understands the, the intent as well. Okay. Okay, all right, I'll call for the council member Kalmick. Aye. Mosher? Aye. Vandermark? Yes. Strickland? Aye. McKeon? Yes. Bolton? Aye. Mr. Burns is absent, so the item passes 601 with the uh, mentioned amendments. Thank you. Uh, members, we're now on file item number 12. Councilwoman Bolton pulled the item, so Councilwoman, yes. uh, the floor is yours. Thank you, sir. Um, I just have a question about finding number 12 uh, in this grand jury report, which says, there have been public concerns and requests expressed over the years for public programs to include spay-neuter programs by Orange County Animal Care. And I guess what the grand jury is asking is for the city to either agree or disagree with that or explain what our position is. And um, the response in the draft is um, review specific to operations of the Orange County Animal Shelter have not been conducted uh, I'm sorry, reviews specific to it right? uh, have not been conducted by the city of Huntington Beach. I wanted to ask why that was the response because we have gotten emails from um, folks uh, uh, expressing concerns about the shelter. Um, and so it seems to me like uh, it would be more accurate to, um, to indicate that we had gotten um, uh, uh, contacts and what, there was one in uh, today's supplemental commun communications about the animal shelter and expressing concerns about that. So um, if staff could 
maybe staff just needs to explain the process <laughs> to me, but I would appreciate it if someone would explain the answer to me. So I haven't received the, uh, the public concerns or requests about that specific issue. I'm happy to take a look at them and, and uh, come back with a response, but uh, okay. I have not personally seen them. And uh, I can uh, gather so, stuff up and forward okay. it to you. Okay. Then, I, then I'd be happy to, to revise that or take a second look at that. Okay. So, so let's hold it over. Hold um, over. I'm actually very concerned. Thank you, Councilwoman, for bringing it up. I've had uh, people reach out to me regarding a lot of the concerns they have with the shelter. And so I would love to thank you for bringing that up, sure. Councilwoman. Mm -hmm. So we'll pull that item for okay. now. Okay. Do we have? Uh, uh, is there consensus? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I just have. Do we have a TikTok with having to respond before they come and arrest us for not complying? Um, I can answer that, um, Connor Highland, Deputy City Attorney. We have requested an extension, and that is has been granted. So we have about sixty more days. I don't have the exact days in front of me, but it's about sixty more days. Sixteen or sixty? Sixty. Six zero. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So would you okay to table the item? Yeah. Table. There's consensus, okay. I believe, to table item. Uh, is there any objection? No. Oh, I see none. All right, okay. item table, thanks. Okay, members, uh, we're now on file item 17. Um, staff, please introduce your report. Good evening. Uh, Lieutenant Toby Archer, Huntington Beach Police Department, talking about the uh, recommendation for the e-bike ordinance. Uh, so <clears throat> some have asked why is this update necessary. In 2015, the California Vehicle Code was updated to include three different classes of uh, electronic bicycles, class one, class two, class three. That's a quick little grid there to see uh, the definitions between the two. There's age requirements for class three bikes, there's helmet requirements, um, and then there's definitions for what they can accomplish. Uh, since 2015 though, as we've seen, there's been incredible development, progress, and innovation in the bikes, and what we're seeing now is different devices such as these, uh, and, and the proliferation of these Suron-type bicycles, electric motorcycles, uh, electric-driven uh, or electric-powered motorcycles, and the vehicle code and the definitions in the vehicle code have not caught up to these yet. Um, there are uh, numerous different definitions for pocket bikes, uh, for electronic bikes, for mopeds, for motor-driven cycles, and motorcycles, but a lot of those do not conform. So that's part of the reason why we need uh, an updated law or, or something that we can use here for some more local control given the fact that the vehicle code does not have uh, an answer to all of the proliferation of the new types of conveyances. Um, as I said, many of the newer type bicycles, and I'll use that in quotes, uh, because they are electric conveyances, but they don't necessarily uh, conform to the definition of what a bicycle is. We see a lot of these Suron type bicycle, bicycles, if you will, that don't have pedals and aren't able to be able powered by pedaling. And because of this, uh, the laws that we have on the books now are confusing and vague, and a lot of the officers, uh, myself included, don't necessarily know if there's a section that applies, and it, uh, there are some sections that are already in existing law that apply to mopeds, other sections, different sections that apply to bicycles, and even more so that apply to motorcycles. So <clears throat> having a municipal code that creates a, like a comprehensive section that covers all types of these conveyances at once uh, gives us the ability to just write a ticket 
or take some sort of enforcement action for seeing unsafe. It also closes some of the loopholes with lack of fitting definitions and applications of law. So what, what does it change? In our municipal code now, it will add the definitions of what we currently have in the vehicle code for electric bicycles. Uh, it updates the fee schedules to be consistent with existing council resolutions. So in the municipal code as it's written now, I believe there's a $5 fine for impounding a bicycle. We wanted to make that consistent with what the Huntington Beach Police Department fee schedule already has. Um, it provides us the authority to impound some electric bicycles that are being operated by juveniles. So for instance, if someone is riding a bicycle or, or a Suron or an electric motorcycle, if you will, uh, it gives us the ability to impound that and then release it to a parent or responsible adult uh, from, the, from the station. So these are the definitions that we would like to add. Uh, and then this will be the language for the, uh, the section that gives us the ability to, to issue citations for riding in an unsafe manner. Uh, as you can see, there's a number of examples that are given at the, at the bottom of what that may be, but that, doesn't, that isn't designed to be an all-inclusive uh, list of what an unsafe manner is, and not to mention it doesn't necessarily, we, we don't want to use that as a definition to write everyone a ticket for any time we, we see a violation. What it does do is it gives us the ability to say uh, someone is operating something we know is inherently dangerous. Uh, they, they may have foot or feet that aren't on pegs, or they're, they're rolling with a wheelie with one hand on the ground, or doing some other type of um, riding that we can tell is inherently dangerous, and it gives us an, the ability to write a ticket for it. Um, <clears throat> it also gives us the ability to, to since it's a municipal code, uh, issue civil citations or criminal citations. And that's already established law that we use now. Any municipal code that we have uh, that's already law gives the officer discretion to either write a civil citation or a criminal citation with a municipal code. And what that means is a civil citation doesn't go on the, rec on the person's record and it doesn't go on their driving record or criminal history for that matter. It's civil in nature, much like what code enforcement does already, but officers have the ability to write those citations and, and do currently uh, a lot during the summer months on the beach for people that are carrying open containers of alcohol and things like that. What we're, what we're seeing now is that we will write tickets, sometimes now for bicycle violations, maybe a juvenile without a helmet. And if we write them on a criminal citation, we have the options to either send them to the bicycle class, which I know we've talked about in the past, but also they can be referred to the court. <clears throat> and what we're noticing is sometimes we're coming into contact with the same individuals, and once we've taken away the option for sending them to the, the diversion class, they're still given that option by the court, and we have no control over that. So this gives us the ability to issue a fine for the violation. There's still a process in place, just like any other ticket issued by code enforcement or, or by us uh, for an appeals process on a civil citation. It's not that there's no ability to fight the ticket, but it gives them the ability to fight it in a different manner and go through an appeals process, uh, <clears throat> which has already been established. So it also gives us the, the ability to do a couple other things. That, as we talked about before, um, we don't have the ability to issue California Vehicle Code violations on private property with public access. And we've had a number of different complaints at shopping centers like Seacliff Shopping Center or Five Point Shopping Center where 
people are riding these bikes, whether they're Surons or e-bikes, through stop signs, uh, dangerously close to other people, pedestrians, and the vehicle code doesn't apply. So we actually have no ability to do any enforcement on those public access private property lots. So this would give us another tool for officers to utilize to take some enforcement action when people are calling to complain about uh, behaviors in those public access but private lots. Are there any questions? I'm sure there are. Uh, I just, when you, when you say criminal citation, I'm thinking a 14, 15 year old, what, what would make you, and would that go on their record? Like, um, it's, look, we need to curb the e-bike uh, problem that we have here in town, but it raises my hairs when you say a criminal uh, citation. Sure, so <clears throat> great question. And again, yet another reason why we would like to have our officers the ability to have discretion. A criminal citation is, you know, any t when, you, when you hear the term ticket, that's what it is, it's a criminal citation. Uh, if if uh, you were to receive a red light ticket or a stop sign ticket driving your car now, it's the same ticket, it's a criminal citation. And that goes to the court. Now there are times when a 16 year old or a 15 year old who's driving without a license, it may warrant getting a, a, a citation that sends them to the court. But you may have a 12 or 13 year old that you want to have some penalty for what they're doing, but you don't want to write them a $400 red light violation because that's the only thing that we have now to utilize as a tool. If we had the option of writing them a lower price ticket, and, and by the way, I think I skipped over this, but the fee schedule that would go with this is already established by council resolution. It would be $125 for the first fine, 250 for the second violation. And, and that's months. the maximum penalty under the criminal citation? No, no, sorry, that's the civil citation. Okay, what, what about the maximum penalty on the criminal citation? We don't have control over that, that's established by the courts. So depending on what the violation is, there's already a bail schedule for that, but if, like a red light ticket, if I wrote a 14-year-old a red light ticket on a bicycle, it's no different than you receiving a red light ticket in a, in a vehicle. And that's established by the court, and there's court penalties and a number of other things. Generally speaking, depending on what violation you're talking about, that can be upwards of three, four hundred dollars. And so an officer may feel that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, given the fact that the only option we have now would be to write a criminal citation, but they may feel like a $125 citation is much more appropriate for the violation they witnessed. And, and I know I'm sounding outlandish, but I just want to make clear, we're not talking about juvenile hall or anything like that for some kind of uh, e-bike violation, correct? No, anything, so anything that we're proposing in this municipal code would be an infraction, which okay. again, you know, obviously there's three levels, there's infraction, misdemeanors, and felonies. Uh, it would be no different than receiving an infraction ticket for anything else. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, nobody wants to be arresting kids on bikes, right? Um, uh, thank you again for, for bringing all this up. Uh, I got a couple of emails and I uh, got tagged in a tweet, I guess, earlier today talking about uh, the f right on the sidewalk against the flow of traffic. Uh, and some folks had concerns that you've got short rides that may require, that would, you'd have to do a giant loop to get all the way around, whereas it's 150 feet in the wrong direction on a sidewalk. And as I read the code here, um, even if we were to strike riding on the sidewalk in, in, uh, against the flow of traffic, um, the way it's written is examples of riding in an unsafe manner may include, but are not limited to the following actions. So even if it was struck, it could still be argued that you're riding the wrong way on the sidewalk could be considered uh, dangerous, and I think it's based on kind of the confluence of issues is what this is, and, and my point I'm getting to is, um, I don't want to see folks at 10 o'clock at night 
riding their bike on the wrong side of Beach Boulevard um, from work because that's they can't get they're in the middle of the block and it's a quarter mile to the next light and we're going to require them to walk their bike in the wrong direction. Like I don't want to see folks getting hassled for that. I want to see this used to deal with the hooliganism that folks are reporting pretty often <laughs> um, uh, to council and to you know the internet that uh, that there there's roving groups of, of teenagers that don't hasn't, haven't seen red asphalt, don't know uh, what it means to, to either get bounced off the hood of a car at 40 miles an hour uh, or, um, or don't understand what, when they run into somebody with this much mass, um, that uh, you can cause severe damage. And so I think the goal here is to protect our residents, to protect kids that don't know better um, and the schools, uh, you know, thankfully have really stepped up and have really started this education program um, for something that just kind of emerged out of nowhere. But, um, you know, I want to make sure that we are, you know, helping for the, the kids that have convinced their parents to buy them electric motorcycles that are un, not street legal, that we can get, to, you know, by confiscating them, uh, we get to have a conversation with those parents, um, you know, as they go and get their bike back from their kids uh, on that. So I just want to make sure that the legislative record is not, going after um, folks that aren't causing a, a problem but are potentially riding the wrong direction on a sidewalk because that's really the, we don't have the infrastructure yet to make it totally convenient to get around this city. Sure, and obviously I think you know the legislative intent here is not to have something that we're going to harass everybody with. It's going to give us the option to address what the community concerns are already. And uh, there are a number of laws that are on the books that may seem petty that you're not, you're not seeing officers issue tickets for now, right? Uh, it just gives us the ability to, really in like what we're talking about, it gives us the ability for a downgraded version of what, it, it closes some loopholes, it gives us the ability to enforce on, on public access, private property and some other things. Um, that's in there because that is inherently dangerous, right, riding on the sidewalk. But there are times where that might be the safest maneuver. And this doesn't uh, absolve people from being safe just because it's a short distance. However, I think if they can articulate, hey, I'm riding on the sidewalk to go here and there's no driveways, which is what the hazard is when you're riding opposing traffic, whether it's in a bike lane or on the sidewalk, if they can articulate, I'm doing this in a safe manner, uh, I think that's reasonable. And it doesn't absolve the officer who would be issuing the ticket for being able to articulate the fact that you have to be operating this in an unsafe manner. Just because there's given examples of what it may be doesn't mean that, that, that people are going to go out there and just write tickets for that. Right. And we have an appeals process for the civil citation? We do, yes. Uh, and and there's multiple levels of the appeals process. Okay. So that's not just one and done for that. Correct. Um, okay, great. Um, the speed limit issue that was brought up as well, which I think is in the code, but not on, not on your slide here. Um, again, that says there's a lot of ors in there in that regard. So uh, again, like if someone's getting a good downhill clip on on let's say on Golden West, right? And there's nobody around. We're, we're not just gonna be citing folks for exceeding a speed limit? Exactly, I think, again, going back to having to articulate the fact that the operating it in an unsafe manner. If someone is on a triathlon bike going down Edwards Hill at 40 miles an hour, that's probably not unsafe. If they blow the stop sign without looking, then I think that that's a different, different case. But it just, it gives examples of what we might see because these are often uh, things that are articulated to us as unsafe things. It's uh, a number of what our primary collision factors are, which is why we included them in, in the law. Okay, wonderful. And then I will be reaching out to our con congressional representatives about the bike racks at, uh, at the post offices. That seems like a pretty easy, uh, <laughs> easy fix there. So thank you so much.
I do want to add one thing. We did, we did have a typo, and I will take full responsibility for this, but we will be eliminating uh, letter G because it's, it's, it's essentially the same as uh, letter E. So uh, I put this in here, but I believe that is one change that we want to make from, the, from Legistar. Anything else, members? Yeah, a couple of questions. Go ahead. Thanks. Um, we had talked a little bit earlier during the study session about data, um, collecting accident data that is specific to e-bikes. And um, Chief, I don't know if you were here, but I was saying that I recall that we had a discussion uh, maybe last year where you provided some statistics on um, numbers of accidents that involved e-bikes. I don't know if you remember when that was. For some reason, I cannot remember when that was. I don't recall a specific date, but we okay. did have that conversation. Yeah, okay. Well, one thing I wanted to ask about um, moving forward is if we can collect data um, in a way that, um, you know, designates or specifies, you know, yes, this particular accident or collision involved an e-bike. Um, I mean, you guys, you're the experts on that, but I just want to ask if it's possible because I think as we continually recognize, it's really um, useful to have data as much as we can. So we, we are capturing that data uh, effective. Uh, since that conversation, I don't recall when, but we are capturing that data relative to overall crashes involving bicycles, e-bicycles, uh, and then percentage of e-bikes versus you know total crashes, et cetera. Okay. And I'm happy to provide that to you. Oh, that would be great. Um, and then another question, um, um, a resident wrote in and asked um, if, it, if it made sense to pass this on an emergency basis to make it an emergency ordinance so that we didn't have to wait 30 days from the second reading. Um, and so I just wanted to um, raise that with my colleagues and see what people thought about doing that. And if there are any legal impediments, ask the city attorney um, for your recommendation as well. Um, so I think we have to have findings to support the emergency and the findings aren't built into this. What we could do is uh, see if we can represent it at the next meeting as an emergency ordinance, and then that way it would be it would take effect immediately. And I'm looking at Connor Highland. Yeah, um, we can look into that and um, try to get by, back to you guys by the next meeting as an emergency ordinance. But mechanically, we have to build findings in to justify the emergency nature of the emergency ordinance. Right. Okay, and, and also, Chief, to um, if you had any recommendations or preferences um i wanted to make sure you know we ask you about it as well yes so i'm i'm not opposed to that at all i think uh if we're able to do it and we can have the articulation it, it's uh, it works for me i get uh, as you well as you well know because you get them too i get a lot of emails about this issue it's definitely a community priority so uh, i believe we'll be able to have the justification okay great i appreciate that one final question um and if you don't know the answer Please um, don't worry about it. But I was just curious about other cities or jurisdictions that had e-bike um, regulations, if anybody is aware. I think um, uh, Director um, Vu mentioned Laguna Niguel as being one other city uh, that has e-bike regulations. And I was just curious uh, if there were ones in addition to that. So, so various cities have e-bike regulations up and down the coast, starting from Dana Point, San Clemente, et cetera. What, what I've asked Lieutenant Archer to do is pull together the cities, including the Orange County Sheriff's Department, and have a summit here uh, regarding all of the rules and trying to figure out where we, where we have common, common themes and where we need to work on, uh, on issues so that we can better uh, shore up our, our laws. So he's putting that together, and, and we'll do it here in the city. 
So um, I will tell you when that date is, but I just recently asked him to do that. So that it's not coming in the next week or two. That's awesome. Thank you. And thank you, Lieutenant Archer, for all your hard work on this. Thanks. So Council Member Mosier, I was, at, I was OCTA today for a bike and ped subcommittee meeting, and they actually have aggregated a lot of this already. So I recommend reaching out to, to I should have told you this privately. <laughs> look, you look great. I did it yesterday. Um, yeah, OCTA is putting this all together. So um, they've reached out to all the cities to pull their ordinances together, uh, see what other cities have done for both bike and who's treating bike and e-bike separately. Um, and then they're, they're actually having a bike ride here next week. On the 24th at uh, yeah. uh, Rad Power Bikes. Yeah, 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 they're doing a big bike down, down through the city just to see what's going on. But yeah, OCTA, I think we're gonna put this together for you already. Councilman McKinn. Lieutenant Archer, I know you said no juvenile hall for e-bike violations, but when you impound the bikes, can you at least take the kids by the jail to show them what bad behavior can lead to? <laughs> we, uh, we can probably develop some sort of a program for that. <laughs> Scared straight. Just kidding. I, I kind of like that idea. <laughs> no, um, uh, thank you, Lieutenant Archer. Um, so I think you were you were starting to talk about the civil penalties that are, the, the council had already determined before. And you had mentioned 125 for the first offense, 250. Did it continue from there? I don't remember. It caps out at uh, five or six hundred dollars. So it's 125, and it, I believe it's 125 for the first offense, 250 for the second within six months. And then I believe five or six hundred for 600. the third offense. For okay. The okay, that's helpful. And then is it the Ciron? Is that the correct name, or what is the? That's one model of an, an electric. It's not technically an e-bike, and it's not technically a motorcycle, uh, depending on which definition you're looking at. But yeah, that is that is one of the manufacturers. Okay, and so in, if you saw somebody out driving that, which that should not be on our roads here, correct? That is correct. What would you likely do if you had the time and the resources in that moment? Well, that's a good question. What we, what we are doing, and we are doing this, is interpreting the law to treat them as pocket bikes. Uh, <clears throat> because most of the definitions in the vehicle code now reference uh, cubic centimeter engine size, and these are electric, so they don't fit into those uh, definitions. Mm -hmm. um, some jurisdictions, and we did reach out to a number of different jurisdictions to pull what they are doing. Some are treating them as off-highway motorcycles, and some are treating them as pocket bikes. And there's definitions of brake horsepower, engine size, and, and they don't really fit into either of them. And some have taken one interpretation, and other jurisdictions take another. Uh, we believe that the most appropriate citation or most appropriate uh, uh, Violation is them operating a pocket bike because of the way that pocket bike is defined, and we think that's the closest uh, definition that we that that we use. So, if they were operating a pocket bike, what would you do? We issue them a citation for a, I believe it's twenty one seven twenty of the California Vehicle Code, which is operating something that's not designed for on highway use on the highway. Okay, and you'd have the option to do a um, criminal versus civil citation at that moment. Uh, technically, no, because it's a California vehicle code, okay. and, it, and that those can only be issued for criminal citations. Great. So I think that um, for me, uh, number one, I appreciate that the schools, ha I believe, have been working with PD um, on doing training programs, and I don't know if it's licensing or certification programs at the schools to even be able to have the bikes on campus. Um, but that, so I appreciate that. But that brings to mind that um, perhaps we can work with the schools to communicate these, uh, this new ordinance once it's approved. Um, because I think that there are, my thing is with this is with the parents. 
Um, I want them to know one that you know they might be on the hook for a lot of money if you know if they're buying certain vehicles um, for their um, children to ride on. Um, that there might be consequences that there weren't before, and I want them to know what those are so they can make good decisions and, and help their kids make good decisions. Do you think that that would be reasonable to work with the school districts? I think that's absolutely doable. We, uh, we actually did that for registration this year, and one of our, the, the trifold pamphlet that we developed was sent out at, at registration time. Uh, we're working on doing a couple other things to get that out to as many people as possible, not just in digital format, but in print as well. But I think as soon as this is, uh, if this is passed, it, it shouldn't be a problem to get that out, sent out digitally by all school districts. And then riding on the sidewalk against the flow, not okay. Riding on the sidewalk with the flow of traffic, okay? Uh, it depends on where you're at. Technically, it's against the law in a business district, okay. uh, but by and large, there's not a law that's preventing that. Okay. I just know that, again, we talked about infrastructure earlier and bike safety, and I feel like I know a lot of people I don't think feel safe all the time on the street, so I just wanted, again, to clarify that for people, but it, it varies depending on the situation. It does, and it also depends on the ability and the speed of the rider. Uh, if someone's gonna be riding at three miles an hour, it's probably safer for them to be in the bike path. But if you're gonna be riding at 27 miles an hour on a Peloton, <laughs> it's safer to be riding on PCH. I mean, you, you see that quite a bit. You know, mm -hmm. There's people that are in spandex and road bikes uh, that really should be on PCH because that's safer. Um, and it's the same thing with, with, in, in a neighborhood, right? If you're with your four-year-old who's just learning how to ride, uh, the, the sidewalk may be a safer option. But if you're gonna be riding with a flow of traffic at 20 miles an hour on an e-bike, then the sidewalk might not be the best option. Do you feel like you're going to have the resources for enforcement for this? Because I see a lot of this around town with large groups of kids, too. Um, what are your thoughts on resource? Well, we can always use more officers, but <laughs> we, we're already writing a number of tickets okay. now. And, but this just gives us another tool in the toolbox for us to write something that we may feel is more appropriate given the circumstances. So. Uh, we're, we're definitely focusing a lot of enforcement on this, so I think it, it just it, it aids in that. Okay, great. And I know Councilmember Kalmuk, I think, just mentioned the bike racks. Um, from Somebody had mentioned it earlier, and I know it's not exactly on this topic, but city staff, Costa Mesa has a request a bike rack program. Uh, perhaps we can add that to our things that we can do to encourage proper stoppage or parking of bikes. Um, thank you so much, um, Lieutenant Archer and uh, the team for the work on this. Um, I think that this is hopefully, maybe we can have um, a kind of a report back in a few months, um, maybe with the, um, I don't know, I don't know the best metrics to, to demonstrate success or not of this. You can figure that out. Um, but I would love to have a report maybe uh, quarterly or every six months um, for a little bit just to see if this is working um, and maybe even stories perhaps we might have from either the kids or and or adults or parents with this too. Sure. Thank you. So Lieutenant, I have a follow-up question just based on your answers uh, with the councilwoman. Did you say a Saran is not legal anywhere in Huntington Beach? That is correct. It is not legal anywhere. Anywhere in Huntington Beach? Okay. Correct. Right. It's not just, it's not legal for street use at all. Okay. So I have a question. Well, um, early, the earlier presentation, they stated that there's there's no way to tell how many accidents were by e-bikes, but then I spoke to an officer after where he said that there is actually a code designated for accidents with e-bikes. I believe he said it was code 91. Yeah, I, um, I think I can answer 
answer that. It, <clears throat> we can. We, we, we can track uh, e-bike collisions if a report is taken. I think what a lot of, um, in discussions I've been a part of, uh, what happens a lot of times with e-bikes is accidents occur and they're never reported to the police department. People get up, they dust themselves off. What they were looking for, I think, in some legislative intent is to see if the fire department or the hospital has the ability to track whether an injury was caused as a result of an e-bike accident as opposed to whether a traffic accident was reported and an e-bike was involved in that. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So do we have a motion? Go ahead. To that, as everyone was talking. So fire, for, like we talked about PD, for instance, collecting data. Um, if someone gets e-bike on e-bike accident or e-bike falls down, somebody calls 911, uh, does PD show up or just fire? We both do. Okay. And, and, and if it was an e-bike accident that happened on the street that we're aware of and somebody is injured, we absolutely take a report. But a lot of times the e-bikes are single vehicle and then nobody calls the police or no one calls 911 or they get themselves to the hospital and we don't learn about it. And that's why I think they were looking at potentially collecting better data from the hospitals as sure. to whether or not an injury was as a result of an e-bike. Do we have access to insurance company, um, like auto insurance records type of, or health insurance either way? Because I know, I mean, if an e-bike crashes into somebody, um, like I'm assuming that there's a, like an insurance piece for that, but I'm assuming someone would have called the police or... It's, it's, if, you don't take a, if you don't take a report, um, would there be data, valued data to pull from insurance records to be like, yeah, there was a claim put in for a crash against an e-bike? Uh, that would assume that it would be involved with the vehicle, and I think more often than not, we would be involved. I guess what I'm saying is I know of some anecdotal stories of people that have crashed, for instance, riding home from a bar, uh, and they'll hit a curb and they'll crash. No one has ever called. They, they, they're embarrassed, or, or they don't feel that it warrants a police department response. So nobody else is liable for the for the injury, so so they just go home, uh, or they're just transported by the fire department. But nobody ever calls the police department because they just you know ran into a pole or ran into a curb. So um, that's not data that we have to okay. even collect. So fire doesn't have any extra data then potentially. No, we we changed our uh, data set recently, probably in the last year. We separated out bike accident from e-bike, so our medics can check a different box, and then we we work we're working with PD to kind of mutually report those. Okay, cool. Thank you. Do I hear a motion? I'll go ahead and make the motion. Move. Do I hear a second? Second. Move. Just second. Just for clarification, yeah. is this for approval of the first read or? Yes. Uh, because you you mentioned that you, we had to come back with language for the next for the next one to make it. So would you also like us to bring back an emergency ordinance yes. at the next? So the yes. next meeting will have a second read and an emergency ordinance, which will take precedent over the second read. Correct. If Correct. we have them. And then that way right. it's uh, immediately. And if, yeah, and if you can't make the findings for the emergency ordinance, then it would just be the regular second reading for that, so. That was gonna be my question. Yeah, no, was, okay. that, was my, that was after the fact, so yeah. Is so Madam Clerk, call the roll. Okay, and so can you remind me who moved in second again? And Vandermark, correct? Yep. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, Councilmember Kalmick? Aye. Mosher? Aye. Vandermark? Yes. Strickland? Aye. McKeon? Yes. Bolton? Aye. And that is with the correction um, that our officer over here identified to remove that correct. duplicate line. We have that in the record as well. Okay. I'd like to read uh, the item passes 601 with Burns absent. I'd like to read for the record introduction of ordinance number 4302 an ordinance of the City Council of the City of Huntington Beach amending Chapter 10.84 of the Huntington Beach Municipal Code relating to bicycle regulations. Wonderful. Um, do I hear a motion and a second to adjourn? So motion. Moved. 
been moved, it's been seconded. Second. We're, we're adjourned. <laughs>